Hey guys, hope you're all doing well. Very excited to be doing a live stream. It's been, uh, I don't know, maybe a month and a half since I've done the last one. This is number eight, I believe. Uh, don't forget, if you wish to have your questions answered by yours truly, please consider donating via Super Chat. Uh, we already have, fantastic, it's not even officially started. It's now 2.30. We already have a question from Call Me Studo. Thank you so much for your donation. Gad, can you perform a psychological case study on blockbusters such as superhero films, Avatar, etc.? What do these stories say about us individually, collectively? Loved your talk with Schellenberger, by the way. Thank you so much. Uh, my talk with Schellenberg, Michael Schellenberger uh, took place yesterday, and I posted it yesterday. He's such a lovely guy. He has such a beautiful Zen way about him. He's someone, for those of you who don't know, who yeah, he's been trying to argue that, yes, of course, climate change might be happening, but uh, it's not the end of the world. It's not a catastrophe. It's not an apocalypse. And so he's bringing in some you know temperance to the general uh, story. Please go check it out. And if you enjoy it, uh, you know, sh share it and subscribe to the channel, subscribe to the, uh, to the podcast. Please do so. It's free and it certainly helps uh, in all kinds of ways. Uh, regarding your question, call me Studo, I have done such an analysis in, in two of my books, in The Evolutionary Basis of Consumption and in uh, The Consuming Instinct. I talk about uh, cultural products as fossils of the human mind. The idea being that we can do exactly what you're saying. We can do a content analysis on song lyrics, on television plot lines, on movie plot lines, as you asked, on literature, literary narratives, on religious narratives, on art, all of these cultural products uh, fossilize, if you'd like, right? We could study an ancient Greek poem from 2,500 years ago, and it's going to tell us exactly the same thing about the human condition as would be the case today. And that's why I call them fossils of the human mind. So uh, I have done these analyses. I've even published a paper uh, in the Review of General Psychology, uh, I think in 2012, where I exactly addressed your question. So Please check out those two books, and if you have access to the journal, uh, check check the journal out as well, the, or the, my article in that journal, 2012. Thank you so much for your question. Moving on to the next one. Zagros Oskan. Dear Professor Saad, would you be so kind as to do a long-format version of your video about uh, deontological versus consequentialist ethics in the domain of free speech? Much love and good weekend, sir. Thank you so much for your donation and for your question your very important question, uh, I might add, because as I've explained on many occasions, I won't do the long form here, but let me just summarize. Deontological principles are those that are absolute statements, right? It is never okay to lie would be a deontological statement. It is okay to lie if you spare someone's feelings, that would be a consequentialist statement. Statement For some things, it is perfectly okay to be a consequentialist. For most things, we are consequentialist. But for fundamental principles that define the rule of law, the, 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 the foundational ethos of a free and enlightened society, those principles have to be deontological, meaning they can never be violated. And that's why uh, I went after Sam Harris, not because I'm obsessed with him, not because I care so much about him. It's because I can't stand this kind of bullshit. He violated deontological ethics. Thank you very much for your question. Uh, moving on. Uh, all right, who we got here? We've got 
Matt Scroggins, any plans to get out of the socialist dystopia that Canada is turning into? Exit strategy, piggybacking off the narrative questions. Thoughts on Ayn Rand? Love your work, Dr. Saad. Thank you so much, Matt. Uh, look, uh, I've I've thought about getting out of Canada for a very long time. As a matter of fact, I've been thinking about getting out of Canada since I uh, returned to Canada in 2003 from the University of California, Irvine. There are some wonderful things about Montreal, where, where I live. But there are some horrible things. The weather is unbearable. The tax is unbearable. I'm not a huge fan of, uh, you know, some of the other, you know, uh, socialist uh, utopia that we live under in Quebec. Uh, the problem is that I'm a tenured professor. It takes many, many years to build an academic career. You build a lab. You have graduate students. You're tenured, so therefore you have that security. It's part of my DNA to be a professor. So at this stage of my career, short of another university coming and making me an offer which of course in a, in a sane world, it shouldn't be difficult to do, but you know, I'm very dangerous because, you know, I defend some really radical ideas like freedom of speech, like individual dignity, like personal responsibility, like the scientific method, like meritocracy. Those are all very controversial and divisive topics. I'm not likely to get another professorship anytime soon. And so if I leave Canada, it would be to walk away from a tenured position and that's always scary, especially given that we are, um, my wife and I had our children late. We've been together for 23 years, but our children are much younger. Uh, and that makes it a bit more difficult to be a risk taker. But from your lips to God's ear, we are looking at different options. Hopefully, at some point, we'll be out of Canada. Thank you very much for your donation, Matt, and for your question. Uh, any thoughts on Ayn Rand? It's funny that you say this because I just received a gift. I went to my office uh, earlier this week and i had a calendar from the atlas society uh and apparently uh, they, they, they sent me a calendar and several of the days of the calendar have quotes of mine so uh you know uh, maybe i'll talk about ayn rand more at some later point uh but there are some elements that i agree with others maybe less so uh, i do have a billionaire friend from texas who's a huge fan of ayn rand and i was at an antiquarian bookstore in florida uh, earlier this year, and I found a whole bunch of first editions, and he asked me to buy it, buy them for him, as if you know I carry around you know huge wads of money. That's that's how billionaires think. But anyways, thank you for your question. Uh, I, I won't spend more time on Ayn Rand for now, but uh, she's got some good points. Moving on. I hope I didn't miss anybody. Oh, I just want to make sure. I, I don't know if I'm doing this right. Okay, choke tea. Morning, Gal. I was wondering what your position is on the concept of free will. The more I learn about evolution psychology, the less I believe we truly have control over our decisions. Thank you. It's a tough one to answer here because it would take a bit longer. But the idea that, oh, we are bound by, you know, uh, chemical and physical realities that are part of the natural order of things. Yeah, that's banal. But to then argue that that means that we are robotic executors of these natural laws seems profoundly epistemologically useless it says nothing you know uh yes of course we are bound to these laws to then argue that we don't have free will wh what have i been wasting uh studying and doing research in psychology of decision making for the past 30 years if we don't instantiate our own uh, free will when we're making decisions then i've been wasting my time so I have tons of other very very famous psychologists some of whom have won nobel prizes so i'm certainly not in the sam harris camp it's a bit more nuanced. I'll leave it at that for now. Uh, but thank you so much for your donation. Moving on. Uh, Mike 
Quaglia regarding Sam Harris. Can you think of anyone else whose intelligence has been as has been subverted as badly as his? <laughs> you know, it's funny because uh, a lot of people who you know who are sane, who who are not rabid fans of either yours truly or of Sam, you know, hear my uh, criticisms of some of his recent positions and say, "Yeah, I'm with you." I've I've received so much flack from his fans; it's unbelievable. I'm I'm obsessed with him. You know, my my wife and I can't be intimate with each other because I'm too obsessed with Sam Harris. He's always on my mind. I've got posters of him uh, all over my house. No, the reason why I went after Sam is nothing personal. I don't dislike Sam. Uh, you know, as a person, I probably agree with ninety five percent of what he's done in the past. You know, the only way I could explain what's happened to Sam is that he has succumbed exactly to the parasitic ideas that I discuss in the parasitic mind, right? Uh, His his hatred of Trump is insane. Therefore, he's willing to forego every single moral precept that he's otherwise ever argued for because he suddenly becomes a consequentialist when it comes to Trump. Trump is so dangerous. Trump is such an existential threat to humanity. I mean, literally what he says, that all bets are off. You can lie, you can cheat, you can subvert freedom of speech, you can you can shut down journalistic integrity. Everything is on the table when it comes to Trump. And then, of course, recently in his uh, clip where he said, you know, if every single thing that I had said at, on, about COVID had come out differently, let's play that scenario, let's do that simulation, then, you know, things would have been different. Right. If my grandmother had balls, we would have called her my grandfather. So uh, I go after Sam not because I'm going after the individual. I go after Sam because I can't stand the bullshit that he's saying. There you have it. Uh, I hope I can get this right. Uh, let me just... Okay, that was Mike Quaglia. Let me go to the next person. AK, dear Godfather, would you soon be going on Rogan for the new book's promotion? Promotion. What do you think of Dr. Peterson's seemingly totally evangelical approach to his opinions lately? It's too much. Love your work. Much respect. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm hoping to go on Joe Rogan uh, probably in July when the next book comes out. By the way, guys, forgive the shameless plug. The sad truth about happiness eight secrets uh, about, you know, pursuing the good life and so on. As a matter of fact, it's the teaser image that I chose for today's Ask Me Anything. It is incredibly important for people who are interested in my work to pre-order the book, right? You can pre-order right now, today, because what happens is all of the pre-orders are accumulated such that the day that the book is released, if there's tons of pre-orders that have already been pre-ordered, then they all are instantiated that first week as sales. Why is that important? Because then it allows the book to enter from the first week, the bestsellers list, and then that serves as a cascade. Then it becomes like an avalanche, a domino effect. So it's not just, oh, pre-order it now or buy it later. It doesn't matter. If we can amass all of the early sales together via pre-order, it really helps. So please do so ASAP. Uh, Regarding Jordan, I mean, Jordan has always had an apostolic quality to him. I think that's one of the things that attracts people to him, right? He's not just a clinical psychologist. He's not just a former professor, but he also has this kind of religious aura about him. So it does not surprise me that, you know, he's quite evangelical in his uh, uh, delivery. We have different delivery styles, but I think uh, from his perspective, uh, the fact that he has uh, you know, tinges of kind of this uh, religious narrative within his delivery is something that's worked for him. So I'm not sure what else to say. I, I'm not a particularly religious person, although, of course, I'm very much Jewish in my identity. 
So that's where I'll leave it at. Okay, moving on. I hope I can get to all the questions that are coming in. Thank you so much. Huma Nihai, thank you for your uh, donation. Uh, I want to see a lot more people, 189 people. Come on, please email your friends. Tell them I'm here. Let's have some fun. Have you seen any woke people addressing the following contradiction? If there are tens of hundreds of sexes, why trans by surgery and hormone treatments are done only between male and female? Yes, I mean, of course, if we're going to start looking at the cognitive inconsistencies with some of these uh, woke positions, uh, we'd, we'd be twisting in a pretzel. And I mean, that's precisely what I talk about in the, I guess you could see here, the parasitic mind. Uh, for example, uh, you're you're totally fine to come out as trans when you're three years old, but uh, if you commit a murder when you're 17 years, 364 days old, meaning you're one day shy of being 18, well, you know, you're just a child who should not be put in adult prison because you're just a child. Your prefrontal cortex is not yet developed. So it's not yet developed when you put out a premeditated murder on someone, but it is fully developed when you're three years old and you decide you're in the wrong sex. So there's a lot of these contradictions. Uh, you know, we can go on forever on that. Thank you so much for your question. Uh, AK, thanks. I'm not sure if you're, I think, yeah, you were there earlier, I believe. Would you please check the work of Indian author Jay Say Deepak and have him on your podcast if you find him interesting? His two books on decoloniality and history of India have been brilliant and bestsellers on Amazon India. Well, thank you for that. You may or may not know that I recently had Rajiv Malhotra on my show, who's a very, very uh, well-known Indian-American author. And then our chat, which was originally posted on my platforms, then uh, was posted on his, um, you know, Infinity Foundation platform. It's received a lot of attention in India. Well, everywhere, but in India. Uh, I'll certainly try to look that up. Thank you so much. Cheers. Okay, let's move on. Uh, we've got Mexican Ani. Hello, Professor Saad. I was interested in knowing if you are still conducting research as I want to participate and start my PhD. I sent you an email to your John Mosley email account. I'm from Mexico. I do remember you in that uh, our depart departmental secretary told me that you had reached out to her. She even uh, you know, sent me the audio of your message because my mailbox is full. The reason why it's full, it's because I get a million messages and I stop listening to it. So the best way is to email me. Uh, look, uh, I'm always happy to explore the possibility of supervising, a, you know, a bright and good student, but I never, I typically never, uh, accept a priori to work with someone un until they've been accepted into the program, until they've gone through the program, gone through my course, done well. So I'm certainly open to that possibility, but I can't a priori tell you, yes, come to Concordia. I'll work with you because we don't know each other. You know, a PhD supervision is four, five, six years of very intense uh, supervision. It takes a lot of time. So I don't want to dissuade you. If you're interested in doing so, please consider applying. And if you get in, then I'm happy to talk to you once you get here. Cheers. Okay, let's move on. We've got, what do you think of Kevin B. McDonald's culture of crit critic? I, I don't I know who Kevin McDonald is. He is a evolutionary psychologist out of Cal State Long Beach, if I'm not mistaken. He did a he wrote a, a piece that I'm often asked about about Judaism as a group uh, selections strategy, uh, which some people thought you know was quote anti-Semitic and so on. I, I don't really know that theory uh, that you're talking about, uh, but 
yeah, I know. I certainly know of him. We might have even communicated once or twice, but I think he's now emeritus. He's out of academia, if I'm not mistaken. Cheers. Okay, Steve Brake, what a generous donation and without any questions. My goodness. If everyone, I, I don't know if it's appropriate for me to say what, or I don't even know if you can see what someone donates. I don't know if you can or not. But if everybody were to be as generous as Mr. Brake in supporting my work, then maybe I wouldn't be tied to Quebec, in which case, you know, there are, I have so many plans of things that I would love to do. I would love to develop online courses. I mean, behind a subscription wall, you know, here's an eight-part series, <clears throat> excuse me, on evolutionary psychology. People can sign up. Here's a, you know, eight-part series on happiness, which is the topic of my next book on the good life. Uh, you know, I could do live streams, you know, once or twice a week. I could do tons of speaking engagements. It's very, very difficult to do that. And again, not that I don't love being a professor. I love doing research. I love supervising students. I love, uh, you know, I love most things in academia, but it also comes at a great price. It's administration is brutal. Some of the teaching is very difficult, especially in today's reality, especially given who I am. The university is not exactly uh, friendly to me. I, I have a lot more to say about this. Something actually happened last week that was very problematic at my university. I'll, I'll hold my tongue for now. So, uh, you know, I, I'm always torn. I, I don't want to be too forceful and, you know, asking people to support my work. But, you know, I do all this completely altruistically, right? I mean, it's like I've got seven full-time jobs other than my academic career. If I only was a professor, it's a very intense and, and, and difficult and stressful job. And yet I do a million other things, always out of the, you know, the purity of my spirit. I just love to engage. I love to debate. I love to share knowledge. I love to exchange ideas. That's how I started my channel. That's how I started my podcast. That's why I go and do all this media stuff because I think that professors should be doing all that. But there's a lot of effort that goes into doing all that. And uh, for whatever reason, apparently I'm not very good at uh, constantly reminding people or soliciting from people uh, that they support my work. And so thank you so much, Mr. Brake. Very, very generous of you to have done so. I think. Have I answered all the, the, the people who, who have sent me? Am I missing anybody? Have I not? Let me just check. Steve, I've answered this one. Oh, Usman Ahmad, thank you so much for your donation. Mexican Ani, I've answered. BSR, what is the reason for the far left's Islamist uh, agenda? There is a book called United in Hate by, I think, United in Hate by Jamie Glazoff, who is a... His, uh, he's got a PhD in history from Canada where he exactly talks about united in hate, meaning the leftists and the Islamists, they're united in their common hate of uh, the West. So, uh, so I think that's the common thing. Uh, if you you know want to hear more about that, uh, read his book. Very good book that will answer your question. Thank you for your donation. Uh, I'm just scrolling back. Anthony... Uh, Mazzarella, how can evolutionary psychology help us understand gender dysphoria? Oh, uh, I'm seeing some of the other comments that are not part of the uh, the super chats. Thank you so much for your kind comments. Uh, I, I don't think that evolutionary psychology can help us understand gender dysphoria, right? It's, uh, you know, people are not, some people might not be happy to hear that, but uh, you know, it's not a default mechanism. It's not an adaptive mechanism for people to be born in the wrong body. You know, stuff happens, right? So that's like saying, uh, 
you know, why do some people like fishing while others like uh, scuba diving? So the random combination of genes and the developmental mechanisms that result in our personhood sometimes don't take the, let's put it this way, typical strategy or trajectory. And therefore, gender dysphoria, if you want, is a, uh, a manifestation of that, right? So I don't think that there's an adaptive explanation for why gender dysphoria exists. Shit happens. Uh, okay, let's move on. Uh, have you seen any? Okay, I've answered this one. Uh, oh, here comes Zagros. I'm going backwards. Apparently, I don't understand how this platform of Super Chat works, so I, I really hope I didn't miss anybody. Analogy, wokeism is gerrymandering, except it carves out minority oppressed groups from the population inside of geographical carving. I don't understand what that means. Gerrymandering is how you divide, I guess, uh, districts in the U.S. electoral map. Is that what it is? Except it carves out minority oppressors. Uh, yes, I mean, that's exactly what it is, right? You, you divide and conquer. In this case, you're dividing based on some trait, hence identity politics. So yes, that's exactly the spirit of that nonsense. Any thoughts on research on entrepreneurship from Carlos <clears throat> Acosta? Uh, well, of course, uh, entrepreneurship is a field that's very vibrant in uh, business schools. So, uh, yeah, it's a great topic. There is some interesting research that links mm, physiology to entrepreneurship. So, for example, there's a study, I think it was from 2006, that looked at how testosterone levels of men uh, increase their score or entrepreneurial proclivity, which makes perfect sense, right? Because to the extent that testosterone is a is a hormonal precursor to risk-taking, and to the extent that entrepreneurship involves risk-taking, then you'd expect people with higher T-scores, testosterone scores, to score higher on entrepreneurship. So yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in entrepreneurship uh, going on. Dear Godfather, would you soon? Okay, this one I've done. I hope I haven't missed anybody. Uh, okay, I think I've done all these people here. Let me go back here. If I've missed anybody, I will self-flagellate later. I hope I haven't. What the hell is going on? Hold on, guys. Give me a second. Would you consider recording your lectures as your university, like as your friend Jordan Peterson has done, so that we can take your course and explore your ideas via YouTube? I mean, yes, but ideally what I'd like to do is put those, you know, uh, locals, the, the, the company locals and which is now with Rumble, they've approached me a few times to join them. And I've always resisted so far because once I join, I really want <clears throat> to develop content that would make it exciting for people to actually subscribe behind the paywall to my content. I don't want to just do that and then not give people you know, their, you know, a certain set of offerables. So one of the things that I'd like to do if and when I sign up behind one of those subscription uh, platforms is to have my lectures available. Uh, so absolutely, that's something that I'm thinking of doing. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Thompson, for your contribution. Uh, less truth, less trust, more truth. Thank you for your um, donation. Out of curiosity, what is your IQ? Thank you. Uh, it's difficult to answer this one without appearing like a arrogant asshole. Uh, I'll, I'll just say this. Uh, I did once a test online. Uh, and it was very high. Let's put. Let's leave it at that. All right, moving on. Uh, Howard Schoonover, 
Thank you for your contribution. People are like self-pruning bonsai trees. We make our choices and our choices make us. Yes. Uh, I mean, in a sense, that's not unlike the idea of gene culture coevolution, right? Uh, culture can create a certain environment that causes certain genes to be more likely to be selected. And therefore, what gene culture coevolution models argue is that it's a feedback loop. Genes affect culture, culture then affects gene, and it's an on and on with the feedback loop. That's why a lot of the idiots who say, oh, but you know, evolutionary psychology is just biological determinism. They couldn't be further from the truth because for, for an evolutionary mechanism to operate, it must operate within the confines of a specific environment. So to argue that, you know, uh, evolutionary theory ignores environmental forces is the height of idiocy. It is, we we are an interaction of our genes and our unique life trajectories. And that's why evolutionary psychologists talk about the interactionist framework, interaction of genes and environment. Thank you very much for your contribution. Thomas Paras, thank you for your contribution. What's your take on the, I knew this one was going to come up and I sort of prepared for it. Uh, what is your take on the Steven Crowder versus Daily Wire controversy going on right now? Okay, so I don't know much about it, but this is what I know. and then. Someone can tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, Daily Wire made an offer to Steven Crowder. Steven Crowder did not like the, the, the gist of the offer. At first, he went on his platform and, you know, critiqued that offer without, you know, saying who it was. But then eventually, I guess it came out that it was the Daily Wire. One of the co-founders, Jeremy, I don't remember his last name, did a rebuttal uh, clip uh, where he's explaining the the nature of the contract. If if I understood correctly, the the key contentious point again, I didn't really drill down very deeply, but what I understood correctly, it's not so much the the money that was the problem. I think it was fifty million dollars. Although someone else said that it could have gone up to one hundred and twenty million. I don't know if that's true or not, but apparently uh, it's that you know if if he gets a strike on YouTube, that number goes down. If he's canceled, uh, you know, on Apple the number goes down. And from the Daily Wire's perspective, that's business, right? It's, it's, a, it's a business model. From Steven Crowder's perspective, he's saying, well, no, it's not only about a business. It's about us be freeing ourselves from big tech, and therefore we need to develop a different business model. I think that's the general idea. My general feeling more than the, the details here is that I don't think those are the types of things that should be aired out publicly, because even if you're both going to be gracious and classy about it, it always looks bad when you're airing out these very, very private uh, negotiations publicly. So I think it would have been much more socially graceful and you know, possessing greater protocol and etiquette if this had not happened. Uh, there are many things that I intervene about publicly when I'm discussing you know, uh, someone's position on something. Uh, even if they had been a friend, sometimes you have to go after someone criticizing their ideas. That's 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 what I do. That's my job. Uh, that's what I signed up for. But this strikes me as very personal. It's negotiations. It involves a lot of people. Uh, I don't think it, it, it was in French. We say maladroit. It was clumsy to for them for I guess Stephen to have originally done that. But what I can tell you is that when I heard about some of those numbers, 50 million, 120 million, it I can't I couldn't help but bring it back to myself. Okay, well if he, he's got a huge platform and therefore maybe he's deserving of that money. Where is my three million dollar offer? Where's my five million dollar 
Although, believe me, not that I want to take a backseat to anybody, but if the uh, if the if the name of the game is the metrics of how many viewers you have, you know, how many downloads, how many uh, you know subscribers you have, uh, then uh, take any number that he's offered. I should be getting my one million dollar offer any minute now. So that's one of the things actually that frustrates me. I always tell my wife, I'm big enough to be known by everybody, but not big enough to receive the massive offers from anybody, right? So I'm in that ugly, I like to say sweet spot, but it's the opposite of a sweet spot, right? Everybody wants to be somehow be associated with me, but the Spotify $200 million offer is not coming my way. I don't have Joe Rogan's numbers. I'm not getting Steven Crowder's offer. And so that's a bit frustrating because I think that if my platform were to grow, uh, then I might be able to instantiate uh, uh, my escape velocity from Quebec. There you have it. Thank you so much for your contribution. Moving on to the next per uh, person. Uh, oh, God, I don't know where I am in the thing. People are like, good evening, just read. Oh, good evening, professor, just reading Parasitic Mind, and I have a copy of The Consuming Instinct. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, would you be able to speak with Joko uh, Wilnick? I think you might have spelled that wrong, if I'm not mistaken, on the instincts of leadership and how EDSO may have evolved. I don't know what EDSO is. Certainly, there is a whole bunch of papers on the evolutionary roots of leadership uh, that have been already published. I know some of the people who are doing work in the leadership uh, arena. Actually, one of my uh, former professors at when I was a McGill MBA student, his name is Jay Conger. We became good friends uh, subsequently. He's now a professor in Southern California. He left the frozen tundra of Quebec for greener or sunnier pastures in Southern California. Uh, he was a firm believer in the nurture element of leadership, that, that you can nurture leadership. Uh, now, I think it makes sense for him to do that because he makes a lot of money, uh, you know, training people how to be better leaders. Now, at the margins, I think you can do that. But I am a firm believer that much of leadership abilities are uh, innate. In other words, in the same way that you you can't teach people the one, two, three of how to be funny. You're either funny or not. I mean, there are little things you could learn. You could learn how to, you know, develop better comedic cadence or comedic timing. But really taking a seminar on how to be funnier is probably not going to be something that's going to be very successful. So number one, I think much of leadership is innate. And number two, there's been many studies done on uh, the biological and evolutionary roots of leadership. So you can check those out. An easy search on Google Scholar will, will help you identify many papers. And uh, thirdly, regarding Joko, we did connect at some point uh, to, to try to get him on my show and vice versa. It, it never went anywhere. Maybe we can revive it and we'll see what happens. Thank you so much, Mr. Owens, for your contribution. Moving on, where are we? Douglas Seberg. What did you think when Rogan caved to the mob, apologizing for ever using the N-word, claiming context doesn't matter, saying his skin color means he can't use it, or when he participates in pronouns by calling men she? Uh, what do I think about him using the N-word or about him apologizing for using the N-word? Uh, look, I've always been of the opinion that uh, uh, you shouldn't you know, violate certain 
etiquette norms you should you shouldn't be unnecessarily uh insulting or of offensive to people even when i go after people in a spicy exchange on twitter i i usually do it with a twinkle in my eyes there's really a smile it's it's never with any rancor it's never with any so if you you know use the n-word in a context where we now know that people don't like you to use it i think just stay away from it i don't think that's a violation of free speech it's just you abiding by certain uh you know norms of society which of course evolve right i mean now we were told you know don't say black say african-american now Stanford is saying the opposite. Don't say African-American, say black. It's gone back full circle. So I understand the, the stupidity and the frivolity of some of this language police stuff. Uh, apologizing for it. Uh, look, I, I made the point, and believe me, I got a lot of flack, that uh, you don't have to get all you know uh, brittle and break down because someone used the N-word. Uh, uh, and then, of course, tons of black people came after me. How dare you? How you know? I went through the Lebanese Civil War. That's a lot worse than hearing the N-word from Joe Rogan. Maybe in the order of about, oh, say, one trillion times worse. And yet I survived because anti-fragility matters. The stressors in life make you stronger. Now, you don't need to face stressors as big as the Lebanese Civil War, but you know you don't have to wilt away like a broken flower because someone said the N-word. On the contrary, take that and use it with full dignity to advance in your life. So, you know, that, I guess that's all I have to say. By the way, when I was a soccer player, I would get called sand n-word by actually oftentimes by black guys that i was playing against sand n-word is usually a name that's given to people who come from the middle east i was called camel jockey i didn't wilt away i usually scored four goals against you and then told you to f off there you go all right let's move on where am i where am i west slot i you know i feel like i'm i'm, I'm losing some i hope i'm not losing any hi you are quite firm on using the deontological framework for decision-making. Is there an ethical framework that informs your deontology? For example, how do you know in what context to apply deontology versus consequentialism? That's beautiful. Uh, I mean, there isn't a black or white framework, you know, please enter into this black box and this will tell you whether you should use deontology or consequential. But I can give it to you on a philosophical level if you'd like. Principles that define the foundational ethos of an enlightened free society are deontological by definition, right? So if I say presumption of innocence is a deontological mechanism by which everything else in the justice system flows, it's not presumption of innocence applies except for Brett Kavanaugh as my intellectual hero and luminary, hmm, the Malibu meditator says, right? No, you either believe in the presumption of innocence or not. You're either pregnant or you're not. So I can't give you the exact algorithm by which you could enter a situation and it spits out the ontology or not. But what I can give you is a heuristic, which is the foundational values on which a free and enlightened society are built are deontological, period. You never violate them. That's it. All right, let's move on. Where am I? CL, oh, uh, Jorge Whitaker. Uh, thank you for your contribution. I It seemed like a big number, but maybe it's five cents. I don't know. It's CLP. I don't know what that means. I'm guessing some Chile uh, currency. Dear Professor, greetings from Chile. What are your thoughts on Lacan? Holy crap. Really? You're asking me that? If you're asking me that, you haven't been paying attention to me. How can his influence be diminished before that? Is, is it still a huge influence on the psychology field? Big hug. Big hug right back at you. Jacques Lacan 
Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault are, th are the holy trinity of French bullshitters. They're the original sort of postmodernist. Jacques Lacan is full of shite. Forgive me to my Scottish friends. I love, I have appropriate. The word shite is now mine. I own it. And because I love it because it's so, it's so, it's visceral. Okay. So Jacques Lacan equals shite. It's just complete random gibberish. It has zero influence in psychology. The only influence it has is in some remote spheres where they still teach this kind of Lacanian psychoanalysis typically in some obscure French school of bullshitters. But Jacques Lacan, uh, I certainly, other than in some postmodernist you know, place where we were making fun and criticizing postmodernism, in my academic career, say as a doctoral student, uh, you know, and I was trained heavily in cognitive studies and in psychology and so on, uh, he's worth nothing, zero, garbage, nada, zip. Okay, where are we going? What do you, okay, let's go back here. Let's move on here. Okay, Westlot. Oh, I already said this guy. Doubting Thomas, thank you so much for your contribution. You missed my previous super chat. Why do you think that the left tends to have an anti-natalist bias? Well, first, my apologies. You know, the, the way the super chat is structured, I don't know if you guys see it the same way or if it's only me who sees it. It both scrolls this way and it scrolls that way. And so I'm utterly lost as to whether there is an exact mechanism by which I can make sure that I touch, I get to each one systematically. If I missed yours, my infinite apologies. Send me then an email and you know I'll self-flagellate or something. So you missed my previous super chat. Why do you think that the left tends to have an anti-natalist bias, example, abortion, promotion of LGBT, push to reduce population because of climate change. Well, each of these things is, comes from a different place. That's why when I talk about the parasitic mind, I talk about different idea pathogens, each of which results in different uh, you know, public policy decisions or ideological positions that drive us to the abyss of infinite lunacy. So it's you, you can't come up with a single parasitic idea that generates all of these, but let's take any one of them. Uh, the anti-natalist, uh, I'm assuming what you mean by that is uh, they're against the idea of uh, you know populist nationalism. You know We need to have strong borders to protect against other people coming in. Well, that's because they're smarter than you. That's because they realize that Kumbaya, because it's you know all cultures are equal. So here the 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 ideological parasite is cultural relativism. Who are you to judge other cultures? Don't don't Guatemalans and Hondurans have a right to come and experience the American dream? Well, yes, of course they have the right to experience the American dream, asshole. But they have to do it legally. I'm a professor. If, if, forgive me, but a very well known professor, a professor who's been a a professor at Dartmouth College, at Cornell, at UC Irvine, who got his MS and PhD at Cornell. Yet when I enter the United States, I have to enter it legally. I have to fill out certain papers. I don't suddenly now move to the US because, you know, hey, I'm Dr. Gatsad and, you know, you should be lucky to have me. There is a very difficult process by which I have to go through in order to get into the United States. That's actually one of the reasons why I haven't yet moved to the United States. So by which stretch of the Im imagination the, does the law apply to me, but it doesn't apply to millions of people who come in illegally? So the reason why the left uh, does all of this nonsense and believes in all this nonsense is because, uh, as I've argued in 
several places, including the parasitic mind, they suffer from maladaptive compassion. So the number one thing that they wish to demonstrate to the world is that they are infinitely altruistic and infinitely compassionate. And that simply is evolutionarily suboptimal strategy. I'm not equally loving to every child on earth. I love my children more than other children because my because evolution has endowed each of us with the emotional system to care more about our children than random children in Guatemala. That doesn't make me a bad person. It makes me a person who exists in the real world. But the left says, no, that's not true. You're an asshole if you believe in national borders. You should be a globalist and so on. So, so I can't go through all of these, but each of these idea pathogens results in particular dreadful public policy decisions. All right, let's move on. Uh, where are we? Did I cover everybody? Should uh, This is TVAF. Should the dissident right be engaging right-wing-based Jews who share their fears about the incipient collapse of Western civilization to call out influential global homo Jews? I have no clue what that means. Thank you so much for your contribution, but I don't know what that I don't know what those words mean. Right wing based Jews, dissident right, influential global homo. What does that mean? So I wish I could offer an answer. I don't know what that means. Please forgive me. Maybe right with less kind of uh you know meme stuff with using English words, and then I'll be able to answer you. All right, let's move on. Uh, let me see, Matt, any plans? Okay. Let me go on this one. I've done. Sorry, guys. I'm just trying. I'm just trying to catch up. Dear Godfather. Yes, I've done that. I've done Carlos, uh, Z Zogras. I've done Homane. I've done Anthony Mozzarella. I've done AK. I've done. Sorry, guys. Trying to catch up. What is the reason for the far? Yes, we've done that. Mexican Ani done. Usman Ahmad, done. Steven, Stevie AF. Steve Brake, thank you. Going down, going down. Okay. All right, wait up, guys. Bob the Terrible. <laughs> I love that name. Thank you so much for your contribution. Why do I look so disheveled? Do I look like a homeless old guy or am I still the haunting James Bond Lebanese lover? What's happening? I'm not, I'm not getting a vibe here. I'm looking like raggedy. Am I? Maybe it's the, the lenses that make me look bigger. All right. Bob the Terrible, what do you think of the adage, follow the science? Is it possible to scientifically prove that a particular uh, policy is the correct one? Of course, it is scientifically possible. Uh, I mean, you'd like to think that uh, policy decisions are evidence-based uh, so that not only prior to making a decision, we could say, well, we could do A or B. Here's the science for A and B. Here's the one that suggests it's a better one to do. But then after we've implemented a particular policy, we could look at the downstream effects and hopefully you know, judge whether one was superior to the other. You can't always do it because you haven't designed the right experimental setup to isolate the effect, the intervention. But in epistemologically speaking, of course, you should be able to do it. I think that's one of the problems of why so many people... Uh, became so frustrated with all the COVID policies because those policies did not appear to be, uh, you know, following the science. They appeared to be ad hoc. They appeared to be seat of the pant. So even if we didn't attribute any nefarious diabolical uh, motives to why 
governments were instituting particular policies, and I'm not willing to be this charitable, but let's suppose that we were, it still seemed strange. You know, what you know, why is it that we can't go more than three people on a boat, but two people is okay, but six feet, but not six feet, but mask, but not mask, uh, you know, but mask the children, but not the adults who are taking a photo behind the children, and on and on and on. So I suspect that there will be a thousand doctoral dissertations written about the the failure of decision-making processes when it came to COVID policies. I, I, it's going to keep a lot of doctoral students busy for the next 30 years. Um, so, but yes, in spirit, of course, you can, you can, you know, test these things with science. Uh, but as you all know, now that Anthony Fauci, the science, right? Anthony Fauci is, is science. He said it. He's, he's the science. Now that he's retired, I'm not even sure how anybody can do science because once science retires, Anthony Fauci retires, we're all dead. So there you go. So this is why I'm thinking, by the way, of opening up a uh, food truck, a falafel food truck, because now that science is dead, I need to find another career. All right, let's move on. Vosk. All right. For the Armenians in the in their ancestral homes, Artasakh, no, Artsakh, who are in a, in a humanitarian crisis. Thank you, Dr. Saad. Uh, as you probably know, or may, maybe you don't know, I am married to a, a lovely Lebanese Armenian woman. Uh, yeah, so I'm in. Uh, I I wish I could say that in 23 years of being with my wife, I've picked up uh, uh, a lot of Armenian. Here's one that I think I picked up. If you speak Armenian, Kezi Shadge Sirem, something like that. I love you very much, or something. That might be one. The other one, which I actually used, this is a word that I used in the first uh, uh, dedication, uh, my first book dedication. So right now I've, I have four books and I just, my fifth book is coming out in July. Go out, pre-order it. The Sad Truth About Happiness. We finished this chat. You go on Amazon, you pre-order it. I'm counting on you. Uh, the first book is uh, To Annie, My Hokies. Hokies means my my soul, my right? So Hokies. So I've picked up a few words uh, that come in handy when one is getting down with some Barry White music. Uh, but regrettably, I don't speak Armenian. What's even more regrettable is that our children don't speak Armenian. Not only don't they don't speak Armenian, they don't speak Arabic, my mother tongue. They don't speak Hebrew. I speak. So they only speak French and English. And out of all possible parental regrets that one may have, I don't have many. This is certainly one that I deeply regret. I wish we had immerse them in all of these languages, and now they could be fluent in everything. Uh, you can't imagine the amount of power that is reaped from being able to be multilingual. Uh, I've seen it throughout my life, throughout my career. I mean, not my scientific career, of course, because my scientific career is in English. But, you know, uh, I go on a show, a very prominent show, and we discuss all sorts of things in Arabic. I mean, people are blown away. I then get a whole new audience because they connect with me because I speak Arabic. Uh, of course, I can go on a show in, in in Montreal. It's French. And then suddenly that opens me up to a whole new market that is very much francophone. So while 95% of my engagements are in English, 95 is probably an under, you know, it's, it's probably more than 95. It still is beautiful to be able to converse with people in other languages. So, yes, 
I hear you. Thank you. Let's move on. Stevie AF, seeing that the prevailing culture is anti-white, should people of European descent act collectively in their own interests? Is civic nationalism dead? Well, look, uh, it's a touchy subject because oftentimes uh, people confuse, you know, being proud of the West, let's say, which historically would have been white people, uh, the Western tradition, with, uh, you know, white nationalism, which oftentimes is associated with more sort of nefarious positions. But in spirit, I think that any group of people should feel proud of their ancestry, assuming that there's something to be proud of, right? So like, I don't say I am proud of my skin color, but let's say as a Lebanese person, I could say there are certain elements of Lebanese culture that I'm very proud of. Uh, you know, uh, the ethos of hospitality is a beautiful thing. Uh, our cuisine, I think, is second to none. We do produce some very, very beautiful women. And at least one stupendously, look at this face, one stupendously gorgeous professor who's speaking to you. So to say that I'm proud to be black or I'm proud to be white uh, seems silly because it's not so much your skin you that you should be proud of, but you could say... As a black person, I'm proud of the uh, heritage of black music that my, uh, you know, my heritage has imparted in, in in the United States. So, I think there are specific elements of a culture of an ethnic group that we can be proud of. But to be proud of being white or to be black, or I'm proud that I'm gay. I'm you know, I'm proud that I'm heterosexual. That's pure bullshit. That means nothing. But I am proud that there are certain, there's a tradition in Jewish culture that reveres knowledge, that reveres education. That's something to be proud of. And that's something that other cultures that don't have should emulate. So be proud of specific elements of your culture. Don't be proud of your skin color or your sexual orientation. Nobody gives a shit. All right, let's move on. Mexican Ani. Godfather, I have more questions, but I will send you an email for those. Would you recommend to complete a master's program before a PhD? What master would you recommend related to evolution psychology? Uh, there aren't too many. I'm, I'm unlikely to be able to answer your email, so I'll take the time to answer now because you were kind enough, certainly, to to donate via a super chat uh, because I receive 10,000 emails a day. If I just sat there and answered every person who had a question, that's all I would do from 8 in the morning to 10 at night. So apologies to anybody who said. And even then, I try to answer many emails. Uh, there are no PhD programs that are exclusively dedicated to evolutionary psychology. Usually the way you go about becoming an evolutionary psychologist is that you work with a supervisor who is himself an evolutionary psychologist or uses evolutionary psychology in their work and so on. There are now some programs, for example, Brunel University in London has a um, master's program in evolutionary psychology, but really what determines your trajectory as an evolutionary psychologist or evolutionary behavioral scientist is that you work on a research project that requires you to use evolutionary psychology in the particular phenomenon that you're studying. So uh, what I suggest is, as you very much contacted me, if, if you know, you, you can certainly go through that route if you want to work specifically with me. If you find other uh, people who work in evolutionary psychology that you would be interested in working under their tutelage, then write to them the way you did to me and see if they'd be willing to supervise you. And that's how you do it. So there you go. 
All right, moving on next. Uh, Derpy Pirate. Thank you for your contribution. How do you defend morality on a purely rational basis, given that it is an evolved trait? Think crime and punishment. And to defend morality, aren't we forced into the religious realm? Uh, one of the one of the places where uh, religious people like to argue in support of you know their religious positions is, you know, evolution can explain many many things about the human condition, but it certainly can't explain morality. Pure shite. Okay, there is an endless number of papers in very prestigious journals. There are books that have been written that it, that that demonstrate that there are very very clear mechanisms by which morality would have evolved in exactly the same way that you have opposable thumbs. This idea that you know, well, how can we get some absolute mor morals if it isn't coming from some higher power? It, I mean, it's astonishingly idiotic to think like that. Morality evolves wherever there is sociality. So you even see hints, if not outright manifestations, of moral behavior in other species that are social, precisely because you expect that where there's going to be repeat interactions between conspecifics, members of the same species, you expect that there needs to be a moral code of, of conduct that allows for the uh you know, flourishing of each individual, let alone of the group. So it's, it, it's. I mean, I'm going to say trivially easy. Uh, it, it, there isn't anything unique about morality that makes it outside of the purview of an evolutionary analysis. In the same way that we could study how uh, jealousy has evolved or empathy has evolved, we could study how moral systems and moral guidelines evolve. It's conceptually it's very easy to do now that doesn't mean that you can always come up with a very convincing evolutionary argument for the mechanism by which morality has evolved but it's not something that is epistemologically difficult to do morality is just one of endless traits and phenomena that has evolved through the process of evolution simple there you go okay let's go on i don't know uh if i've missed some hello professor you've missed a few chats might be worth go back now to avoid self-flagellating later also how does one participate in an argument without being a smart ass? thank you that's ben broad did i miss a few you're now you're making me feel incredibly guilty and the person before blake just gave a donation thank you so much uh, how does one uh participate in an argument without being a smart ass uh <laughs> listen uh I'll take myself as an example. 99% of the time, I'm incredibly polite and affable and restrained in my communiques. Uh, once in a while, I lose it. Not that I become a smartass, not that I become, but I can get a bit spicier. It's part of the human condition. You know, the default value should be be nice, be kind, be polite, be restrained whenever you can. And certainly, whenever I am in very formal settings, even when I invite guests on my show, I will never get spicy with them because that's part of the ethos of being of hospitality, right? You can't expect people to come in under your tent, meaning in this case, your show, and then you're going to berate them, even if you disagree with them. So my engagement with someone who is a random person on Twitter is going to be different if they keep insulting me for three days than it would be if I host you at my house or I'm giving a talk at Stanford, you know, under the guise of my professorial duties. 
So, but once in a while, I think it's perfectly fine to let the hair down and, and let it rip, as they say. We are a multifaceted creature. I, I hate people who are inauthentic. I, I don't think the fact that you are a professor, you always have to be pontificating while looking in the air, while smoking a pipe, which many of my friends and colleagues do. Uh, I'm real. I can be playful. I can be a joker. I can act like a buffoon. I mean, an intelligent buffoon, because you, usually if you watch my satire, it, it takes a lot to pull that off. Uh, it takes a lot of self-confidence and, and, and a self-deprecating nature, right? Because I could easily always appear to be so, I'm Professor Dr. Sad, but I'm confident in who I am. I can be jovial and joking, or I can be very serious. You know why? Because it's called being a complex human being. So if once in a while you have to be a smart ass, if it's well uh, within your purview to be so, if it's warranted that you be so, let it rip, baby. All right, let me go back. Uh, okay, I'm just trying to make sure that I haven't missed any. I'm not seeing. I'm seeing as though I've covered everybody. Oh, God, I have made thirty to 50000 This is from Tom Harrison. God, I have made thirty dollars to $50,000 a year for my entire life and finally got a windfall buyout of 62000 and Trudeau took 20000 Sorry to appear lacking in empathy, but boo-hoo fucking who. I'm joking. You know how much he took for this book? I wish people would say, you know what? It's a crime that Trudeau took 58% of your book royalties. Well, Trudeau and the Quebec government. Only 42% of my brain belongs to me. My words, my thoughts, my experiences. Not, not whatever your number is, one-third. If I lived in Ireland, none of it would have taken been taken away because the Irish government knows that artists and writers should not have their products, their productions taxed because that's the pantheon that defines the culture. In French, you say la patrimoine, right? So it's not true that boo-hoo-hoo, why are you complaining about being taxed? There is something unique about having your life experiences, your words, your thoughts taxed. I'm not selling a cup. Okay. I'm selling my personhood and the government's saying most of your personhood belongs to me. I wish I hadn't thought of this now because it's going to piss me off. Look, I'm sorry that you lost that money, but uh, believe me, the reason why it's never going to go away is because 95% of Canadians benefit from the parasitic system that steals from the other 5%. And therefore, you'll never get people standing up against the system because most most people are a net beneficiary of that hell. You need people like me to always financially rape them in order for everybody to receive free stuff, right? If I was making $30,000 a year, I would love to get free daycare, free education, free healthcare, you know, free this, free that. That money has to come from somewhere. You know who it comes from? We knock on Gadsad's door and say, hey, asshole, you're too successful. We're going to take all your money, you know, for social justice. It's grotesque. In the future, historians will look at this and say, it's unbelievable that we accepted it. And I still, till today, live under the illusion that somehow, just like there was cosmic justice when uh, Lionel Messi won the World Cup, I really felt whole in a sense because I said, you know, life is right. This guy deserves to win the World Cup and he won it. I somehow believe that somewhere, somehow, I'm going to get my money back. A billionaire is going to come and say, how much money did that asshole take from you? Here is the money because I support you because it doesn't make sense that 
by the way, for all the money that I made, if you see what I'm left with at the end of the year, you'd say it's not possible. No, you're lying, God said. But that's what a socialist utopia does. Those asshole successful people must be punished so that we are all equal in our misery. It's grotesque. It's anti-human. It, it's an affront to human dignity and personal agency. So I feel it for you. Okay. There's a new institute for research entrepreneurship. Thank you. Where, where is it? I'm not sure. I'm going back. I hope I haven't missed anybody. Douglas Seberg. Oh, I already answered this guy. Okay. Let me go forward. God damn it. If I've missed anybody, I apologize. I will, I will self-flagellate. I was disappointed to hear. This is from Douglas Seberg. I was disappointed to hear Rogan apologize for jokes and pretend context doesn't matter. Thank you for never caving and for articulating how this mind virus works. Parasitic mind spices. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I never ever cave. Not that's very different. Not I never apologize. Anybody who says I never apologize is setting themselves up for failure. By the way, I talk about this in my next book, in the, the Sad Truth About Happiness. Go out and pre-order it now. I talk about the importance in a marriage, for example, of, of apologizing. Well, the importance in any relationship. Because what that does is it, it requires humility, right? When you say love is humble, when you're apologizing, you're lowering yourself. You're, you're lowering your head and saying, you know, I was wrong. That, that was sucky of what I did. I spoke to you in a curt way. I had no right to speak to you that way. Please accept my apology, right? That takes humility. I know people in my personal, in my family, in my nuclear family who've said, I will never apologize. Guess what? They divorced because it takes humility to apologize, right? It takes intellectual honesty, emotional honesty to apologize. So saying that you don't cave in doesn't mean that you never apologize, but apologize for the right thing. Don't apologize just because of the EMOP comes after you. I've had a million EMOPs come after me. Guess what it does? It emboldens me. I get more ferocious. I double down. And guess what? They all go away. All the castrated invertebrates go away. What they're banking on is that by coming after you, you will cave. Drew Brees, Drew Brees, all-time Hall of Famer quarterback. I loved him as a player. I love the New Orleans Saints because of Drew Brees. He apologized because he was showing patriotism to the United States and to the flag and to the national anthem because that made some of his players feel uncomfortable. Well, fuck your colleagues. If they're uncomfortable because you love your country, screw them. I don't need to apologize. So I said, I, I had done, I think, a, a whole thing on Drew Brees. I said, this guy spent his career avoiding being decapitated by 350-pound guys but then he was afraid of the blue-haired Taliban because they were coming after him because, hey, you got to apologize for loving your country. What an idiot. So, yes, don't cave when you don't need to cave. Lebe Stark, would you be interested in having a podcast conversation about training sports on our Kettlebell podcast? As far as I know, you've been into soccer in your youth. Please, P.S. Red Parasitic Mind, love it. This is not really the right forum to ask such a question because I don't know what your podcast is. I don't know how many followers it has. I mean, forgive me for saying that, right? Because, you know, everybody now and their mother has a podcast. I receive probably 25 invitations a day. If I went on every single podcast, that's all I would do all day. I have to pick and choose just because of time. So you can send me an email. I can forward it to my scheduling people. And then, you know, I can see. So there you go. Thank you so much for your contribution. I appreciate it. Uh, 
Tom Harrison, Gad, you, Douglas Murray, and Yaron Brook are my top three. Well, you're very kind. Thank you so much. I've had Douglas Murray on my show once. We've never, uh, uh, you know, I've never been on any of his platforms. I'm, I don't even think he's got a podcast, but he's been on mine. Uh, but that's been a couple of years, so maybe he's overdue for a, 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 a re-invitation. Uh, Although his people had reached out to me when his last book came out, but we never ended up uh, setting it up. Uh, Yaron Brook, I think I've been on his show twice, and he's been on mine once. Uh, great guy. So I'm uh, thank you. I'm touched to be amongst uh, these lovely folks. I, I really appreciate it. I appreciate the compliment. All right, moving on. Who else we got? We're at 296. We need more people. We need more people. Carlos Acosta, oh, the Facebook Institute for Research Entrepreneurship. Uh, okay. Thank you very much. I'll try to check it out. Uh, CGB, please see my last super chat about five or six ago. CGB. Okay. Let me go back and look for it. Uh, okay. As I'm going back, I saw other people. Usman Ahmad. Uh, thank you for your contribution. Hi, Professor Saad. What is your personal moral stance on pornography and the ex-adult film stars? What a great question. I actually wrote an article on my Psychology Today uh, column, which I now don't write much anymore on just because I have other platforms that I can you know, share my ideas. But back in 2008, I had joined Psychology Today. They had invited me. And I wrote, I think, over 300 articles uh, on their platform, and I wrote several on pornography. One of which was, you know, is pornography, you know, detrimental, and so on. Look, it, I have kind of a uh, a complicated uh, feelings about uh, pornography. On the one hand, if I'm going to put on my strict libertarian kind of ethos, I, I know that it's the government libertarianism is related to you know government interventions. You know, live and let live. If people are uh, making that decision to, I, I'm talking off from the perspective of the the film stars. If they're doing it without any duress, by the way, there is a hypothesis called the damaged good goods hypothesis, which basically argues that the only uh, people who go into the porn industry as actors, especially in, uh, female actors, are those who are damaged because otherwise they would never make that decision. And the empirical research does not support that hypothesis. Although intuitively it would make sense that it, it, it holds true, uh, it doesn't look like it's true. At least empirically it doesn't. Morally, look, I've I've had two porn stars on my show, Mercedes Carrera, who subsequently got into some legal trouble for some stuff that apparently happened. You can check it out on your own. But she was you know, a very bright woman, educated i think she had been an engineer before she became a film star a porn star and then eva lovia uh i've been on her platform uh and she's been on mine and she's actually invited me to to go down to north carolina to do her show my wife said i don't think so her exact words uh but in any case beautiful woman eva lovia uh i'm a bit torn because and i i asked them i think i asked that question to both of them when they came on my show. And I, I made sure to get their permission if it would be okay for me to ask them that question when they came on my show, which is the following. How do you think you're going to explain this to your child? Does it not bother you that, you know, if your child eventually grows up to know that this is what you did and there are all sorts of places where they can see their mother in all sorts of compromising situations, to say the least? Usually the answers that I get 
uh, are not ones that, frankly, I believe are totally honest. Uh, you know, if, if I'm going to teach my son or daughter to not be judgmental, and if they love me, they'll accept me for my choices. I mean, come on, I don't. So, uh, on the deepest of personal levels, I think it is it is difficult if you're going to have children to be able to explain that decision to them. Uh, but then again, hey maybe I'm more judgmental than the children that these porn stars have. But it, I think it's very difficult for a 12, 13, 14 year old kid navigating through the hellscape, the possible hellscape of uh, high school to then uh, have to also navigate the fact that your peers in school are saying, Oh, Hey, I just uh, masturbated to your mother. Uh, so, you know, to each his own, uh, I certainly would not be happy if anybody in my family were to do it, but I certainly don't judge others. So I've, I've actually come in the defense of Eva when I've seen people abuse her on Twitter or something. I think that's, that's gauche. I don't think you need to do that. Uh, you can certainly say, you know, I don't support that choice, but then to go after something, you know, she has a brain. She's, she's a real person. She has a brain. She's now left porn. She's trying to do good things. And so I certainly wouldn't judge her, uh, as a guest on her show or as, as her being a guest on mine in terms of if people consume porn uh, again uh, I don't particularly have a problem with it. Uh, people use all sorts of marital aids. I, I think as long as the industry is well regulated in that you're not, you know, coercing people into joining the porn industry, consenting adults can do whatever they want. There you have it. Okay, let's move on. Uh, I think I've done this one, Douglas. Oh, Douglas message retracted. I don't know if I answered it earlier already. Uh, sky empty. Does God know what he'll do before he does it? Well, sky empty. Uh, maybe that means that there is no God that you're saying, uh, I'm not necessarily the right guy to ask about God since I'm unconvinced that God exists. Um, I'll leave it at that. All right, let me go back, Stevie. Uh, I've done this one. Oh, AK, thank you for your contribution. Uh, what are your best tips for fat loss? I'm a vegetarian who eats eggs. So in my case, as I explained, I explained actually in my forthcoming book, but I also most famously explained on Joe Rogan in my last episode where I went, uh, I lost 86 pounds in total. Uh, I've put on back about six or seven. So I'm not happy about that. I need to go back. I, I'm i now in the higher end of 170s. The lowest I got was 170. And so I need, and I've never been able to crack 170. I literally, I think I got to 170.2 or 170.0. I've never seen a 1.6. But anyways, I've lost well over 80 pounds. The way I did it is uh, 15 to 20,000 steps a day. It could be elliptical, it could be walking, it could be running, treadmill, it could be biking. But I keep track of my steps and it's it's 15 to 20,000 a day. But as you know, exercise is only about 10, 15%. Some say 20%. I'd say it's probably more like 10% of your weight loss. It's really what goes in your mouth that determines weight loss. Uh, I, for a very long time, for almost, I think, 18 months, was eating between 15 and 1,700 calories a day. So on a, on a very tight day, I would be, you know, 1400 something, 1500 something. How'd I do that? Well, my wife kept track of all, every single calorie that went into my body, every single thing, 
through myfitnesspal.com. I mean, she could tell me today you ate, you know, 1,567 calories. It takes a lot of time. So you really do need a partner who's committed to, to help you through it. I wouldn't have been able to do it without my wife. Uh, and I also would eat very little carbs, which was a disaster today because we went out and we had these ridiculous pancakes. So before I did this uh, session, I punished myself for 65 minutes on the treadmill, and then I did some weights and so on just to try to look a bit more svelte for you. So 15 to 20,000 steps a day, 15 to 1,700 calories a day, almost no carbs, uh, largely protein, salads, fish, and it all melted away. I was I was losing about a pound to two a week, and the heaviest I got that I'm aware of was 256 uh, which is very heavy for, for a guy my height. Uh, the, the, the good thing for me is that I wear it reasonably well in that when, even when I'm very heavy, it spreads everywhere. So it's not as though I'm you know very, very skinny, but then I've got a huge stomach. So even though I'm noticeably heavier when I'm obviously much heavier, you know, I kind of pull it off, but I then went from 256 to 170. And it took about, as I said, 15, 16 months. So there you have it. Thank you very much for your question. Best of luck. Uh, okay, I've done this one. What do you... Uh, okay, why... This is CGB. Oh, I got you, CGB. Why do so many modern leftists reject accountability? Is there a biological, psychological component, or is it a primary tool used to bludgeon opposition? Well, I do discuss that in several of my works, including in The Parasitic Mind. Uh, the idea pathogen of social constructivism is beautiful because it basically argues that we're all born with equal potentiality and then it's only the unique circumstances of your life that makes you who you are so for example if you are a very bad criminal what's the point of really uh punishing you because you couldn't have been born a psychopath who's void of you know conscience that sounds wrong that sounds deterministic it's not nice to think that people are born damaged and evil. And so therefore, it's it's best to presume that something happened out there. Your mom hugged you too much, didn't hug you enough. You got enough Big Macs. You didn't get enough Big Macs. There's a whole slew of environmental factors that should be able to explain why you are the monstrous criminal that you are. Therefore, why have death penalty? Why have long sentences? Why not rehabilitate? And so... There are several reasons why leftist ideology uh, eschews personal responsibility. I just gave you one example, but there are several other idea pathogens that lead to a rejection of personal responsibility. There you have it. I don't think I missed anybody else here. Let me So let me go down. Okay, guys, we're at 318 people. That's great. But why aren't there 318,000 people? What the hell? By the way, today I had a completely free day to work on the next book, to work on a paper, to whatever. And then I set up this thing. And then my wife said, why did you do that? You had a one day, no administration, no teaching, no nothing. You can just work on. I said, you know what? It's fun to just go and field questions and hang out with the fans. I love it. I'm so thankful that you're all here. But why is it 317 or 318? Why isn't it 31,000? Who knows? All right, let's keep going. Carlos, oh, we've got Steve Brake. Oh, but I think that's from before. That's the super generous uh, thing. Mike, oh, 
Derpy Pirate. My question on morality was a bit more philosophical. Okay, you're coming back. I, I remember. Why not ignore your genetically, socially inscribed moral dictates if they have no ultimate basis? Simply to avoid social repercussions. Love you, God. Thank you. Love you back. Uh, well, yes. Look, emotional systems, cognitive systems, behavioral systems evolve because they ultimately serve some adaptive function, right? The adaptive function could be a survival function or a reproductive function, right? Sexual selection and natural selection. So morality is a mechanism that keeps us in check, right? Because if we're a social species, here's an example. Uh, reciprocity is a mechanism whereby if I do something nice to you, I expect that if I'm ever facing a, a, a similar situation and I'm in need, you will reciprocate for me, right? So reciprocal altruism, this is Robert Trivers, uh, is a mechanism that would have evolved precisely because it serves as an insurance policy, let's say against endemic food uncertainty. Your family and mine are walking around in the African savannah. One of the biggest threats that we face, well, the key two threats that we face is not becoming somebody's dinner and getting dinner, yes? Well, getting dinner involves bringing down the big game, but it's tough to bring down a good, uh, the game. Well, how about we strike up a deal? Next time that your family brings out brings down the game, you will share it with me on the condition that the following time when I bring down the game, I'll share it with you. So these bonds of reciprocity in this case serve as an insurance policy against endemic food shortage. Yes? So therefore, we've evolved the emotional and cognitive system that keeps track of violations of norms of reciprocity. Holy shit, I should be charging you a lot more for this kind of wisdom. What the hell? All right. So if you and I shake hands, you do something for me. And then when it comes back to me reciprocating, I don't. There is a cost to that. What happens? You go around saying, well, guess what, asshole? I'm never going to do anything for you because you're a social cheat. And by the way, I'm going to go around to everybody within our group. Remember, we evolved in groups of about 150. Dunbar's number. And everybody in the group know, is going to know that you are a cheating asshole. And therefore, nobody's going to do business with you. And therefore, you're going to be ostracized. So yes, of course, there is a clear social repercussion element to why moral calculus would have evolved. So that's to, to my earlier, the way I answered you earlier, there are very clear mechanisms, mathematical models, uh, cross-species analyses, cross-cultural analyses. There's all sorts of ways by which we can explain how morality has evolved without needing God in the sky telling us how to behave. By the way, there's a lot of, quote, moral codes, let's say in the Old Testament, that are astonishingly immoral by any standard. So the people who say, well, how could you, how could you know what is right or wrong if it's not God telling you? Well, listen, there are a lot of codes that he's telling me to do that I should be ashamed to follow. So the idea that we could only be moral because God is watching and God tells us is actually an affront to human decency because I do what is right simply because it is deontologically the right thing to do. I've evolved that calculus within me. I do what is right when nobody's looking. That's a lot more impressive than you doing what is right because otherwise you're going to burn in hell. Remember that. All right, let's move on. Okay. Uh, where are we going here? 
we're going down. Uh, Usman Ahmed, I think you were there earlier. Hypothetically, if I could cheat on my wife and be guaranteed to my to not be caught, why shouldn't I do it? Well, listen, a lot, a lot of people struggle through that. Uh, everybody struggles through that because, look, uh, human beings have evolved, and, and there is the Darwinian conundrum. We've evolved both to engage in long-term coupling, hence to engage in these supposed monogamous unions, but we've also evolved to stray because there are clear benefits both to men and women to seek variety within the sexual domain. By the way, in my next book, one of the chapters, I talk about variety as the spice of life. I talk about food variety seeking, sexual variety seeking, intellectual variety seeking. So, excuse me, if you want to know more about it, pre-order. I better go on Amazon later today and see the rankings having gone up because a whole bunch of you have pre-ordered the book. If you're going to buy the book, as I said, just pre-order it now. It, it's nothing off your skin. It's no skin off your back, uh, but it certainly helps, as I said, for the bestseller list. So please do so if you appreciate my work and you want to support it and you want to read a great book filled with personal anecdotes, new anecdotes that I've never mentioned before and backed up with science. Really, really cool stuff. I really enjoyed writing the book. Uh, I think here I'm going to get deontological on you. I'm going to get deontological on that ass. Uh, let me tell you why. I wouldn't be able to put my head on the pillow and sleep properly even if my wife couldn't catch me. Why? Because she has given me her trust. She said, I'm entering into this union with you. I trust you. You might say I'm I'm naive. You might say I'm you might you might appreciate and respect me for what I'm saying. You might think I am idiotically naive because listen, temptations are everywhere. And uh given this it's not easy to imagine that a lot of offers come my way through the years. But it's up to you to decide whether you find that it's appropriate for you to live with that or not. Now, here's another thing you could do. Use theory of mind. Put yourself in her shoes, in your wife's shoes, uh, Usman. What about if she said, hey, if he could never find out, let me get plowed by that gorgeous Italian guy. Would that logic be okay? Now, if you think that it would really hurt you for her to do it, then if you are a decent human being, then you say, yeah, well, then I guess I better not. It's very tough. Don't get me wrong, right? We all have impulses. We all have desires. We all succumb to the the, the prospective stray of variety seeking. There are tons of beautiful men and women out there that we might want to have a dalliance with. Uh, depends on what your moral co compass is. That's all. All right, moving on. Damn, so much fun to do these. Uh, all right, let's go on. I'm going down here. Let's see what we got. Did I miss anybody? Uh, did I miss anybody? Did I miss anybody? Usman, hypothetically, I got that one. Oh, here comes Zagros Oskan again. Thank you so much for coming back. Thoughts on Drag Queen Story Hour for Kids. Of course, listen, it's scientifically proven through the blue-haired professors in schools of education that reading comprehension for children is drastically improved, not only if they go to drag queen reading hour. That's absolutely true. That's scientific. If the drag queens also engage in solid twerking, 
then you really are going to develop reading skills. This is why I'm a strong supporter of having in every single classroom where reading is being taught to kids, drag queens serving as the leaders of the the, the, the reading comprehension session. And if they do it with twerking, I'm all in. So I'm a strong, strong supporter of drag queen reading hour involving twerking. I'm all in. Uh, I'm seeing questions being asked, but I'm seeing no donations. So sorry, donations take take precedence. Don't mean to be instrumental with you, but this is how life is, right? Alex Masse, thank you so much for your contribution. Any books or papers on the evolutionary psychology of tool making? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. So off the top of my head, so. I, I don't I don't think it's going to be the evolutionary psychology of tool making unless you literally mean it in the human context. If you mean ethologically, I mean in, for other species, as you know, Jane Goodall demonstrated. I think was the first to demonstrate tool making in chimps, where they take a twig, a, brand, a little twig, they take off the uh, the leaves, and then they use it to get into a, a tree hole to extract uh, termites and then eat them. So that would be an example of, you know, uh, an, a, a, a comparative psychology. Comparative psychology is when you compare different animals to then link to some phenomena within humans. So, of course, humans are tool-making animals, but there are other animals that are tool-making animals. Not too many. Here is, so I just, the classic example is... Um, Chimps, but here is one that, in my view, is astonishingly more impressive than chimps. I think they're New Caledonian uh, birds. I think it's New Caledonian. They're uh, a type of, I think, either crows or magpies. I can't remember the exact species, but you can go on YouTube, watch what these guys will do. You can give them a rock, a twig, and something else to get at a you know, a morsel of food that is hidden in some labyrinth of a puzzle. And they will, they're smarter than most people. It's unbelievable. Like they'll throw a rock so that in the water, so that the water will come up so that the food, the thing will come. I mean, it's just, it's literally bewildering the kind of cognitive abilities that they exhibit. I mean, I truly believe that their tool making, you know, on the fly tool making abilities are greater than most humans. I think they're smarter than most of us in this chat. So, uh, so I think so. The re so to answer your question, I think the research that I'm aware of that deals with tool making is research that's been done on other animals to demonstrate their tool making abilities. So there you have it. Okay, great question. I mean, think about all the incredible topics that we've covered just in this one uh, super chat. Okay, guys, let's get some more. Uh, super chat donations if you wish to have your questions read and if by any chance i've not read yours because my infinite apologies zagros oskan is back thank you so much thoughts on rainbow and blm flags in k-12 schools i'm not a fan of any political uh allegiance uh symbols in schools in general so for example uh, when my 
both my children were in elementary school, but I think this was in the context of my daughter when she was in elementary school. One of the teachers had put as her avatar, whatever her email avatar, I don't remember exactly what it was. She had put like a BLM thing. And I wrote to the principal saying, bullshit, no, 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 don't, don't do that. And then she wrote back, but you know, we have to, under she did the whole kumbaya shit. Uh, I think that's inappropriate. Uh, schools are not places where you exhibit. Now, this doesn't mean that in the context of a class on social studies, we might not discuss the pros and cons of a particular policy that a particular political you know, politician has implemented. So I'm not saying, oh, no, no, don't talk about difficult topics. No, what I'm saying is don't use your pulpit to advertise. It should be ideologically free places, right? Because what if the kid who says BLM is a shitty organization that I don't support? Which, by the way, BLM is a shitty organization that no sensible person should support. They're, they're Marxist hellhole scammers who who stole tons of money for their, they should all be in prison. So what if I was, now I say it and I don't give a shit, but what if I was 16 years old and I go, you know what? I don't want to support BLM. Most 16 year olds don't have, never mind 16 year olds, most adults don't have the testicular fortitude to say F off with your BLM. So schools should not be a place where you advertise your woke bullshit. Keep it to yourself. Okay, let's go on. Oh, they're coming in now. They're coming in now. Okay, here we go. AK. Hello again, Godfather. I didn't get takeout this Friday evening because of money super chats. Do you have <laughs> Oh, well, thanks for making me feel guilty. This, this in Arabic is called Tarbih Jmile, something that I talk about in my first book. Tarbih Jmile is, look, I did this for you. You owe me. So you're basically saying, I am now going to starve because of super chatting you. Way to make me feel guilty. Well, hopefully the amount that I'm nourishing your soul and mind makes up for your empty stomach. How's that? All right. Hello again, Godfather. I didn't get takeout this Friday evening because of my money super chance. Do you have a favorite mathematician? Oh, I love it. Physicist. I love Leibniz and Feynman respectively. Oh, what a question. First of all, as you know, I have a, a background in mathematics and, uh, you know, in science in general. So uh, there's all kinds of mathematicians I love. Do you mean one that I love because of the work that they did, or do you mean as an individual, right? So I, you know, I don't know. I mean, even actually Richard Feynman said, if you think you understand quantum physics, then you don't understand quantum physics. I think I used that quote in the Consuming Instinct uh, in, in my 2011 book. Uh, so, you know, I can't say, oh, I love this guy because I I, I really love quantum physics. No, the, the individuals, Although I, I could comment if you want on comment, but I'm assuming that the spirit of your question is in terms of overall. As a, I do love Feynman. I read his book, Surely You Must Be Joking, Mr. Feynman, uh, and I loved it. And the reason why I loved Feynman, by the way, is because he was a partier. He's going and playing the, 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 the I think, bungo. Uh, you know, in, in carnival, and he's partying, and he's having fun, and he's irreverent, and he's a joker. So I love that because that's how I am. By the way, that's one of the reasons why I wrote my next book on happiness and the good life because people would write to me and say, you always seem like you're having fun. You always have a twinkle in your eyes. You're always smiling. You know, you know, you should, what's the secret? And I said, ha, ah, let's write, let me write a book on that. Uh, you know, based on my personal experiences, personal anecdotes, and then backed up by science. By the way, 50% of uh, happiness comes from your genes. 
But the good news is the other 50% doesn't. So there's still a lot that you can do to affect your happiness trajectory. So I do love uh, Feynman uh, as a person. Uh, there are many that I love. In terms of mathematicians, the one that probably blows me away the most uh, is Alan Turing. Because, and I would argue that of all the courses, so I spent as a student all the way to getting my PhD, I spent 10 years in university. I've, I've taken a lot of courses in all sorts of fields, in all sorts of mind-blowing fields. The The course that I took in formal languages, uh, and it, it was an advanced theoretical computer science course uh, when I was a math and computer science student. The book is, the, the topic was formal languages, which was largely based on a lot of the Turing uh, theories blew my mind. So when people say, have you ever taken drugs? I've never taken drugs. But if you read that book, and if you delve into the profundity of what Turing developed, that that's the highest intellectual drug you could ever take. It's, it defeats, it, it defies logic that a human being could come up with this kind of uh, framework that, that really is outside the realm of what most people can can think. And so I literally used to be on a on a on a high. I, I just could not and actually I've in my office I still have that book. And I if you open it up and I and if you see the the mathematical symbols, it's it's unbelievable. You and then you see all of my writing on the margins of the of the book, and it puts me back in that world of this unbelievably pure mathematics that is just astounding. So Yes, I love Richard Feynman for his personality, and Alan Turing is probably my favorite. But but there are many. I mean, I loved you know Isaac Newton, not for his personality, but for his work. They are countless. Obviously, given my math back math background, there are many many that I love. Okay, let's go on. Craig Morning, thank you so much for your contribution. And then I've got a few others which I need to get to. Uh, oh boy. Okay. Let me, let me get to Craig morning and then I'll come back to some of the other ones as a follow-up. My price to convert a lawn to a native species garden is approximately the cost. Most people pay for landscaping over two years. Once I perform the conversion, the land is self sustaining. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm not sure I follow. I don't know what you're talking about, but you do you buddy. I'm not trying to be dismissive, but I'm, I'm not sure I understand. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, okay, let me go back. Oh, I see now the, the the original question of Craig Morning. So let me go to it. Howdy, this is Craig Morning. Howdy, Godfather. I own a small company devoted to permaculture landscaping slash habitat restoration. I want to attract more customers, but I don't believe in emotional hostage-taking suggestions. Oh, oh, sugar. You want marketing and consumer consulting live now for that donation that's a lovely donation but we're gonna have to go much deeper into the pocketbook for that kind of marketing advice uh no but seriously i i would have to hear a lot more about what you're uh trying to do uh, if you wish to work with me on a consulting basis this is something that we could discuss offline i get all kinds of uh approaches from people who big companies to individual authors who wish to have me mentor them. So if this is something that you wish to seriously pursue, please send me an email and my people will reach out to you. Thank you so much, uh, Craig Morning. Joey Rodriguez, 
thoughts on the Steve Crowder uh, and Daily Wire situation. I already answered it earlier. Forgive me. I don't want to take the time to repeat it all here. So maybe you can go back once this chat is posted. Now it's being live streamed. Once it's posted, it's early in the in the chat, uh, in the live stream where I already addressed this at length. Thank you so much, Joey. Uh, Humani Hay is back. If you move to US, will you oppose being officially classified as white? As white includes also Middle Eastern in the US. Yes, you're right. I, I've heard both classifications. I've heard classifications where I am clearly a person of color. I'm a Jew of color. I'm an evolutionary consumer psychologist of color. I'm a gorgeous man of color. I'm a marginalized person of color. But I've also seen classifications where, oh, sorry, you're from the Middle East, you're white. Everybody's now tending towards uh, us being people of color. Uh, so to the extent that I can use that victimology calculus to win arguments against the blue-haired Taliban, then don't you dare call me white. I'm a person of color. By the way, uh, the tan is going away. Uh, and so I'm looking more and more like a white supremacist. But give me a week or two. I'm going to Palm Beach in about a month to speak at a, a beautiful venue organized by some prestigious folks, uh, including <gasps> Scott Atlas, who accepted Donald Trump's invitation to be a COVID advisor. <gasps> My God, the Nazis, the Nazis. Uh, and so I plan on being very dark when I go there because I'll get a bit of a tan, in which case I will definitely be a person of color. So whether I am an oppressor or an oppressed depends on my skin. You, I plan on being an op oppressed person very shortly. Jeffrey Jones, regardless, thank you for your contribution, regardless of political position, since you have often called out all sorts of injustice in the Middle East, why have you never condemned the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians? The ethnic cleansing. Ethnic cleansing. Now, does the ethnic cleansing include the fact that demographically Palestinians have had a huge increase in their population? Maybe I'm one of those stupid Jewish apartheid guys, but usually ethnic cleansing means that the people are cleansed. Their numbers go down. Uh, so I don't know. I'll have to email my uh, uh, family members in Israel, all of whom are engaging in the systematic erasure of all Palestinians. So they might not have time to answer my emails because they're all engaged in the genocide of Palestinians. Come on, man, get a grip. There is no ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Be decent. They are Palestinians who serve in the highest judicial offices in Israel. There are Palestinians who are high officers in the Israeli army. There are in all sorts of positions. I'll leave it at that. Be decent. Learn about the reality. There isn't a systematic ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. There are some cases where people do bad things. Sometimes it's Palestinians doing bad things in other cases. But let me tell you, if the force dynamic were reversed, Jews would not exist in that place. I'll leave it at that because I don't want to get angry at you, but thank you for your contribution. By the way, we, is, we left Lebanon because of what? 
who were the people who were who made us leave yet i don't hold palestinian by the way incidentally you know that it was palestinian militia who accompanied us and protected us on our way to the airport so don't don't be so so idiotic as to think palestinian good jews israelis bad it's so much more it's so different from that it's so much more complicated than that it's so much more nuanced than that be a decent human being oh man i don't want to be upset all right uh let me move on arthur science any interest in the evolutionary psychology of music do you see yourself branching out more in your future academic papers well i always branch out in my academic papers in that i am the 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 consummate interdisciplinarian i never stick around in one place i mean what is common to all of my scientific papers is that they typically always have some evolutionary angle to them but you know i've written papers on the evolutionary roots of gift giving of mate choice of ocd of munchausen syndrome by proxy proxy of suicide of irrational decision making of the framing effect uh, of conspicuous consumption of the menstrual cycle i mean i'm all over the place I have written about uh, some evolutionary angles of music. Uh, remember earlier, there was a person who said to me, hey, why don't you do an analysis of blockbuster movies and how they speak about our you know, universal nature and so on? And, and as I answered in that, uh, to that question, I have several chapters, one chapter in each of my earlier books where I talk about cultural products as fossils of the human mind. One such cultural product are song lyrics. And so you could do a content analysis of song lyrics so that it, sh it says something about our evolved human nature. And so I've already written quite extensively about these kinds of issues. But there is an entire field about the evolutionary roots of music, which I reference uh, quite a bit in my first book, in the Evolutionary Basis of Consumption. Well, not quite a bit, but in the relevant section. And so, yeah, I've, I've talked about that. Whether I will do an empirical study uh, on that topic is probably not, but I've certainly written about it on a, a theoretical level. So yes. All right, here we go. Uh, Peter Peterson or Pedersen, thank you for your contribution. You are one of my favorites of so many intelligent people on YouTube making interesting input. If I may just, uh, you know, split hairs with you. I'm one of your favorites. One of? Why the insult? Why not? You are the favorite the the one see it's these kinds of jokes where 99 of people get but then the one the 0.01 who hate me say you're so arrogant you're so narcissistic it's called humor but thank you very much that's a lovely thing you look exactly like my father's brother who undoubtedly must be exceptionally gorgeous if he looks like me and my father looks exactly almost exactly like jordan peterson family dinners were awesome awesome okay look at that I look like your father's brother, and your and your father looks like Jordan Peterson. So you, you got the whole thing. You, you got it all covered. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, Jordan is an absolute mensch. The people who 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 attack Jordan, what a bunch of idiots. The guy is genuinely a good guy, and obviously you all know that Jordan and I are very good friends. I don't go out there and share all kinds of stories, but he tells me things personally vice versa he's a guy who feels he's a real he's a man's man he's a mensch all the haters are idiots 
You're a brown person of valor. Thank you very much. Uh, Daniel Philippus. I don't know what that currency is, but it looks like a lot. I hope it doesn't add up to four cents. Uh, okay, let's go on here. Daniel Philippus. Good evening, Dr. Saad. Good evening to you, sir. Do you agree at the statement that most evil policies in American history, like Jim Crow, segregation, and the KKK, originated from the Democratic Party and presidents? Uh, let me answer that one way. Mm, yes. That's what pisses me off, how idiotic most people are, how historically ignorant they are. All of the bullshit racist stuff comes from the Democratic Party, right? J Joe Biden has said more racist crap in a day than uh, any of the four last Republican presidents. He used to be friends with the Grand Wizard of the KKK and, you know, went to his uh, funeral and just a great swell guy. Imagine if Donald Trump was buddy-buddy with the Grand Wizard of the KKK. So, yes, all the policies were democratic. And yet how, how ignorant it is that most people who suffer greatly from Dunning-Kruger effect support the Democrats because, you know, they're the empathetic, non-racist ones. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jeffrey Jones, uh, message retracted. This is a gentleman who said the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Uh, listen, I was very restrained and polite, so I hope that I didn't uh, upset you. Uh, but again, please, I beg you, Mr. Jones, uh, go and really look at the, the history of the Middle East a bit more carefully, and you might have a bit more of a generous position on the matter. But there is no ethnic cleansing of Palestinians taking place. There is none. Zero. Now, that doesn't mean there hasn't been a person who's been harmed by something that some Israeli did somewhere. Of course that happens. Some of it is very bad, but that's called... But Israelis can get rid of every single Palestinian in the next 10 minutes. They don't. The other way, it would have happened. That's the difference, my friend. Stevie AF, should people of European descent be more, be concerned about becoming minorities in their own homeland? Uh, no. Uh, look, I could look at a Muslim person and a Jewish person. The Jewish person is an Orthodox uh, Lubavitch with whom I share a religion, but I share none of my, uh, some of my other foundational values. Uh, and the Muslim person might be someone with whom I share all of my, he's, that, that person is also secular, is all for freedom of speech, is all for the scientific method, whereas the Lubavitch guy thinks that you should only be reading the Torah and so on. And so therefore, life is is complex. It's not whites are good, other minorities are bad, or vice versa, or so on. Uh, judge people as individuals. Judge people as uh, as individual instantiations of their unique personhoods, right? So I love Thomas Sowell. Why? Because he's the original anti-woke intellectual. I never for a second thought, oh, yeah, but Thomas Sowell, my goodness, he's black. It literally is the least interesting thing about Thomas Sowell. So what does it mean that should people of Europe... Now, if you told me, to the extent that people of European descent are more likely to support certain values that I support, whereas people from other cultures may not, now I'm going to say, yes, that's good. But it's not a skin you thing. It's not an ethno thing in the traditional kind of national. It's it's the values that come 
with the particular individual or cultural baggage. So for example, I'm against open immigration for many countries where people who come from those countries have a 99% genocidal Jew hatred in their societies. Now, that doesn't mean that they're all Jew haters, but if in their societies, the Pew surveys show that anywhere from 95 to 95% of polled people think the Jews are evil and should be eradicated, well, then if you let in 100,000 of such people, statistically speaking, you're going to have increased Jew hatred in your country. So that's the level of arguments where you should be you know, thinking, not European descent or white descent, or that means nothing. It's, it's about the values that come with the individuals. I'm much more likely to be friends with a Muslim person who, who whose values I share than I am with a Jewish person whose values I don't share. All right, there you have it. Okay, let's go on, let's go on. We're getting some new people. Okay, let me look. Should people, okay. Uh, call me Studo. I think you were here earlier. Besides yourself, which contemporary evolution psychologist is adding the most to the field and why? Where do you envision the discipline accomplishing in the next 10 to 20 years? Well, thank you for the kind words. Uh, there are many that are great. Probably the ones that I am most drawn to are some of the original pioneers. I love David Buss. Uh, I mean, he produces fantastic work. The only thing that I would say is that David Buss is, by the way, David Buss wrote the foreword to The Consuming Instinct. Very good friend of mine. We hung out um, in Texas when I visited the University of Texas, Austin, back in May of this year. Great guy. And might be one of the oldest fathers ever. He just had his his a child, and I think he was pushing seventy. So there you go. Uh, uh, there are several, too many to mention. But you know, David Buss, Lita Cosmides, John Tooby, husband wife team out of UCSD. Some of the pioneers are still the ones that are doing some of the best work. Uh, where do I see the field going in the next ten to twenty years? I've actually written about that. I think the big. Uh, uh, bang for your buck and evolution psychology are going, in my view, going to come in applied fields where we're going to see how evolutionary psychology contributes greatly in a better understanding within those fields. So what has my career been? I'm housed in a business school. I try to apply EP, evolution psychology, in many, many different behavioral fields, but in particular in consumer behavior and economic decision-making now, imagine you also do that in, in the legal profession, in medicine, in politics, right? So go into all of these disciplines that have historically been bereft of biological-based thinking and unlock some of those fields within the evolutionary, with using the evolutionary framework. I think that's where a lot of the exciting stuff. There's a field called evolutionary architecture, for example. Earlier, we had a gentleman who does uh, horticultural stuff as his company, he, the guy who asked me about some suggestions for targeting consumers and so on. Well, evolutionary architecture is the application of evolutionary principles to designing optimal architectural designs that appeal to our biophilic instinct, our love of nature. Well, that's a really cool field, right? It's taking architecture and marrying it to evolutionary principles and coming up with novel solutions and novel designs. So 
in my view, look, we can always do more studies about human mating and, you know, uh, sexual behavior and, you know, uh, food behavior, all of the sort of the basic Darwinian mechanisms that, you know, you would typically think of when you're thinking about evolutionary psychology. But I think there are great opportunities to go into applied landscapes and use the evolutionary lens. God damn, I should be charging you more for all that wisdom. Okay, Usman Ahmad is back. Oh, thank you so much. I think today you have the record, maybe third third time appearing. Thank you so much. Morals and feelings only evolve to serve others as a means to our own end. If a new method serves me better at others' expense, isn't it a moral 2.0? I'm not sure that I understand what that means. Uh, no, morals and feelings only evolve to serve others as a means to our end. I mean, yes. I mean, in a what you're basically saying is that altruism ultimately has a selfish component and you're right in that we ultimately benefit for example in being altruistic towards others we are ultimately benefiting ourselves this is why by the way in in, in this book this book right here the evolutionary basis of consumption i talk about uh, maimonides's uh, who's a very famous uh, Jewish physician, philosopher, and rabbi about a thousand years ago, who proposed the eight levels of tzedakah. Tzedakah is a Hebrew word for sort of piety, charity, altruism. And the eight levels are sort of more impressive levels. The highest level of tzedakah, Hebrew word, is when the altruist and the recipient of the altruistic act don't know of each other's identity, which exactly speaks to your point, uh, Usman, because what it's basically saying is there is no way for you to benefit from having been philanthropic or altruistic towards the other. Now, the reason why that's the highest level of piety is precisely because it's so rare, because even when we are being incredibly generous and we're being moral and we're being ethical, we're being kind and we're being altruistic, we're ultimately reaping something for it. So even a thousand years ago, some of these philosophers were super smart. Thank you very much for your question and for your contribution, uh, Usman. Charles Kolozvari, I'm sure I butchered, butchered this one. My apologies. Have you heard of uh, Turtles All the Way Down, Vaccine Science and Myth? I'm assuming that's a book. No, I haven't heard of it. It points out that every vaccine recommended by the CDC for children was tested with a non-saline placebo. Why has such faulty methodology gone unnoticed? I don't know anything about what, I mean, so I don't even know if what you're saying is vertical. I don't know if it's true. If it is true, I wouldn't know what to say about it because I don't know enough about this particular thing. My general feeling is that many of the I mean, it's probably too big of a statement to say all vaccines that the CDC has recommended for children, because certainly my understanding is, and I'm hardly an expert in this field, of let's say the MMR vaccine, uh, one would think that it has gone through a much more rigorous set of tests than the COVID vaccines, which had to be deployed more quickly given the, the sort of the time sensitivity of the matter. But I couldn't comment more. By the way, that's part of having epistemic humility, know what you know and know what you don't know. I don't know enough about what you're saying to offer a uh, a definitive position, and therefore I state so. I don't try to bullshit you. 
So sorry, I couldn't offer you more help. But what I can tell you is that next Tuesday, you ready for this? Next Tuesday, Paul Offit, who is a very, very famous virologist, quite polarizing. Some people love him. Other people hate him. Uh, uh, he is uh, one of the uh, founders of, uh, I can't remember which vaccine it was. Is it Aaron? RNA vaccine. I can't remember what it is, which one uh, he's already been on my show. He's actually one of the endorsers of the, he, he, I think I had five endorsers for the parasitic mind. He was one of them. I actually asked him precisely because he's a virologist and the book is about mind viruses, idea parasites. And so uh, he was kind enough to, to write an endorsement, a blurb for my book. He'll be returning to the, to the, to the show next Tuesday. So I'm not sure that I'll exactly write down your question, but if it comes up, I'll try to ask him. Thank you very much, Mr. Kolos Vari. Let's move it on here. We got Stevie F is back. Okay. You posit civic nationalism. If you're an individual where everyone else acts collectively, you're done for. History tells us diversity plus proximity equals conflict as Lebanon testifies. Uh, so there is... Uh, some very compelling empirical studies, if I think that's what you're hinting at. Uh, there is some studies that show that with greater ethnic plurality in a country, there is greater uh, chaos that could potentially lead to civil war. So to that extent, I think you're right. Uh, I mean, we saw it recently in Rwanda. We saw it in Iraq. We saw it in the Balkan states with the Balkan wars. Of course, we saw it in Lebanon. But I think, frankly, that's the the history of the world, right? We The world views, all humans throughout history have viewed the world through the lenses of us versus them, blue team, red team. And uh, so, so that psychological element always exists. Now, what we've been able to do in the West is to create uh, nations uh, where those individual those ethnic differences are subsumed under a greater set of universal deontological principles and once that's why it's important that you that your highest commitment be to those unifying deontological principles right so so i care more about truth and about presumption of innocence and about absolute freedom of speech then I care about whether I'm Lebanese or Jewish because those are the fundamental principles to which I adhere to when I say I want to support Western values. Those supersede my being Lebanese and Jewish. Now, that's part of my history. That's part of my heritage. But if you told me what do I want to go out and fight for, those would, and as I do every day, that's what I want to fight for. I don't fight for... That's why, by the way, the other guy pissed me off with the Israeli-Palestinian thing. His name is Jeffrey Jones, but he's defending Palestinians because, you know, he lives in Arkansas. Anyways, so thank you for that, Stevie AF. I'm not sure if I answered you, but yes, uh, you know, greater, greater ethnic plurality will create greater potential chaos in a society. That's empirically true. AK... What are your thoughts on chat, GPT, and AI? Are we going to end up dumber as society because of AI? How would AI affect our evolution as a, as a species? Uh, I only recently found out about chat, GPT. I know very little about it. I mean, I, I know that it's, you know, nat natural language stuff. It's AI-based. Uh, I could more generally speak about AI rather than specifically about chat, GPT. 
Uh, AI is something that I've been immersed in way before it was cool to, to mention the, the acronym AI. Uh, I took a course in AI in 1985 when I was a mathematics computer science student with uh, Monty Newborn, uh, who was one of the professors who was involved in Deep Blue, which was the IBM program that had been developed to try to defeat uh, Grandmaster uh chess players, human chess players. So AI has been something within my uh, radar for many, many years. Uh, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about it here because I've talked about it elsewhere. Uh, I don't think it's nearly as doomsday as people think it is. Oh, the robots are going to be smart enough to kill us and we're going to become extinct as a species. I think that AI does very well when it's working on structured problems. You know, uh, an AI system to generate medical diagnoses given certain inputs uh, of symptoms. Uh, so it does these kinds of things very well. Uh, it's unlikely to ever be able to model the full panoply of the human emotional system. Uh, you know, brute force stuff, it can do well, right? That's why now it can beat most uh, grandmaster chess players not only because it's using brute search, but also because it uses something called alpha beta pruning, something that we learned in, in my AI course. I actually had to write a program. Uh, I think it was using the game Othello. Alpha beta pruning is when you use an algorithm so that you can prune out part of the decision tree of a game because otherwise it would take you too long to search uh, through you know, brute search the entire tree. It would take you longer than the existence of the universe to do so. So AI is a, is a wonderful field. It has many, many uh, uh, applications, as we've seen over the past 35 years. Some would argue that it has been disappointing. In other words, when I think about the promise of what AI was when I was coming up as a math and computer science student to what it has delivered, it might have... I would argue underdeveloped, underdelivered. Uh, if you want to know more about it, I discuss it with two of my recent guests, Judea Pearl, who is a, uh, a very well-known professor of computer science at UCLA, and Gary Marcus, who's also an AI expert. So you can go, I invite you to go to my uh, channel and listen to these chats. Thank you for your uh question and for your donation fred smh oh my god two hours and one minute but the questions are still coming in so i guess i'm still here fred smh how would you describe the connection of enlightenment with evolutionary biology uh i'm not sure what you mean by that the the, the enlightenment is a historical movement that led to a particular place evolutionary biology now I, I don't know if what you mean by that is you know humans have evolved through different ideological stages leading to the enlightenment that's not how evolutionary biology works right it, it's not forward thinking towards a goal uh, there's a very mechanistic process by which evolutionary biology leads to certain adaptations so i don't necessarily see how these two things could be connected uh Okras Q, thank you for your donation. Why is it that we humans find things funny? What is the meaning of comedy? Great question. Uh, so let me answer this. Uh, okay, there's a couple of ways I can go with this. Uh, first, let me draw a distinction between 
an exaptation and an adaptation. By the way, just this explanation should be worth a big tuition fee. So open up your wallets. Let's get some donations going. An exaptation is a byproduct of evolution. So for example, that that the color of our skeletal system is white is not because that's an adaptation. It's a byproduct. It's path dependent. It just resulted to that because of a path dependency. So it's a byproduct. It's piggybacking. So whereas an adaptation is, it is of that form because it serves a adaptive functional purpose. Okay. So the first question you have to ask is, does appreciating comedy, is that an exaptation? So that would mean, oh, it's a byproduct of the fact that we have these large prefrontal cortexes that we have evolved this byproduct that whereby we are entertained. Okay. Whereas if it is an adaptation, you'd have to argue that it has a evolutionarily relevant uh, benefit. The standard evolutionarily adaptation argument is that comedy or, or being funny is a sexually selected trait of women on men because it serves as a proxy for intelligence. So the idea is that when a woman or many women say, I love, I'm attracted to a funny guy, they're effectively saying I'm attracted to an intelligent guy because it's very unlikely that someone could be funny, could 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 have this, you know, uh, satirical bent, for example. To, to generate satire requires intelligence. It's very unlikely that you can satirize the world while being a moron. And so therefore, so the, the typical adaptive argument for why humor exists is it it's because it was a sexually selected trait there you go all right let's move on uh low rung maslow okay that's cool hi gs did you ever meet alan bloom the closing of the american mind one of the first accessible books i recall reading upon awakening oh what a fantastic question regrettably i never uh met him of course i can probably point here where that book is, you're exactly right. I think uh, The Closing of the American Mind came out in 1987. My goodness, was it a prescient book. Uh, if, if none of you have read it, go out now. What are you doing? Order it. Closing of the American Mind. Uh, Alan Bloom. So regrettably, I never met him. Uh, another book I would suggest, which I've often recommended since we're talking about things related to sort of like the early anti-woke books. The book that blew my mind the most probably within that jar is Higher Superstition by, uh, uh, who is it? Uh, by uh, Gross and Levitt. Uh, one is a mathematician, one is a biologist. Higher Superstition, I'm looking at it right here above me. Uh, unbelievable book. And by the way, Boy, is your vocabulary going to improve after you read that book. It's amazing. I think it came out in maybe the mid-90s, 96, 97, so about 10 years after the Alan Bloom book. Unbelievable. Read it. Of course, after you've read Parasitic Mind. Or maybe you should actually read that book first, then the Parasitic Mind if you haven't. Don't forget the sad truth about happiness. Pre-order it. I'm counting on you. Thank you so much, Low Rung Maslow. Let's move on. 
guys, we're going to have to end it soon. I'm loving this. It's so, so good. Not for the money. I mean, the money is good in that, you know, at least it monetizes my time. But it's just, it's so cool to stand there, have people coming at you with a million different questions in a diff- million different areas, and you have to improvise. You have to come up with, with things. It's, it's, it's really fun. It's, it's a wonderful thing. So thank you very much for being such good um, live stream members. Prasanth V, how close are the U.S. and Israel in terms of values? Do you think a Jewish person would be freer and or safer in Israel compared to the U.S.? I mean, yes, in the sense that there is a growing normalization of Jew hatred in the U.S. Now, I don't think that it's you know an existential threat to be a Jew in the U.S., but I know for a fact that it is now becoming a lot easier to openly express uh, disdain towards the Jews uh, in polite society. So if if only that. Now, of course, we also know from FBI hate crime statistics. There's you know there's a lot of there's always a lot of Jew hatred and so on. Uh, of course, on university campuses, it's always normalized, but it's always normalized under. That's why the Mr. Jeffrey Jones upset me. It's always oh no, I love the Jews. It's just I hate Israel. I love the Jews. I believe that every single people on earth have a right to have their own land, including Palestinians. But bruh, Jews, I love Jews. I even, you know what? My accountant is Jewish. They're good with money, the Jews. I love Jews. It's just I hate Zionists because, you know, they are engaging in an ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. F off with this Jew hatred. Not true. I've been to Israel many times. I've spent entire summers in Israel. Most people will go about their day perfectly fine. I've gone into the uh, Palestinian territories. Everybody treated me very nicely. I've played soccer on the beach with Palestinians. There isn't an ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. F off with that bullshit. Be a decent human being. Yes, there's a problem in that region because it's contested land. But if we're going to pull the history card, Jews existed in that land for thousands of years before there was the word Palestinian. So let's not play the history game. The reality is that there are two people that live there. If tomorrow the Palestinians said, we will renounce forevermore any violence, there would be peace. If, on the other hand, you gave all of the Israeli weaponry to the Palestinians tomorrow, every single Jew would be eradicated, as we've seen throughout history for 1,400 years. So F off with your bullshit. Be a decent human being. All right. Henrik Levy. Hi, God. I've been following you for nearly a decade. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to hear. I have much gratitude for your work, for you and for your work. I haven't even finished high school, so I've learned a lot from you. It's hard to explain in a super chat. Many thanks. You know, I thank you so much for saying that because I've always told people, look, it's great to, 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 to go and get formal degrees. That's wonderful. And that is one path to do so. And as a professor, I always tell people, study more, study more. You're never going to lose by studying. If you, if, you, if you can afford to study, study. But there are many ways you can study. And here's Mr. Levy saying, hey, I didn't finish high school, but guess what? I'm learning. In today's world, you have access to the top brains in the world. You want, you want to know about classics? There are 100 classicists that I can take you to, and you can watch their lectures. And they're from Stanford, and they're from Harvard, and they're from Cornell, and they're from MIT. You, you could go watch Jordan Peterson. You could come and watch Gatsad. You could watch anybody you want. We're all available at your fingertips. So uh, 
I'm a strong proponent of lifelong learning. One of the things that stresses me the most is to realize, despite all that I know, how little I know of all that there is available to know. And so I'm always pissed off when I see all of the books in my personal library that I've yet to read. So there's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more noble than the pursuit of knowledge for the sheer beauty of pursuing knowledge. So I'm delighted, uh, Mr. Levy, that I've been able to help you on that lifelong journey. Uh, it's an honor for me to have been able to do so. Thank you. Uh, Will Buey, is there any evolutionary reason for why it's so common for people to be disgusted by others who might disagree with them? It's not obvious to me why it's not common for people who seek out contrary views to learn from. Well, I kind of touch on this kind of issue in terms of you know the building of ideologically uniform echo chambers and so on. I talk about that in uh, this book. But you mentioned the word that I liked very much because it is evolutionary-based. The evolutionary roots of disgust, that itself, is a fantastic field. And I actually supervised a thesis of a student of mine, Zach Mendenhall, where we studied exactly uh, disgust from an evolutionary perspective. Unfortunately, the results, as often happens in science, the results didn't uh, cooperate with our hypothesizing, although I have some good methodological reasons for why I think it happened. So we never ended up publishing it. But there is a, a, a whole, although I still think it would be worth to publish it, even though the results weren't very promising. But in any case, there is a whole literature, Will, that uh, looks at the evolutionary roots of disgust. And just to put very briefly, disgust could be viewed as either a domain general mechanism. There's just kind of a general disgust, aversive response. Or you can view disgust as being domain specific, meaning that we've evolved to be disgusted in different ways depending on the domain of disgust. So, for example, there is pathogenic disgust, being disgusted at the at when somebody somebody you know sneezes and then wants to shake your hand. You go, oh God, I'm disgusted. I'm not going to touch this guy. You could be this. Uh, there's sexual disgust. There is moral disgust. Each of these forms of disgust has evolved for different evolutionary reasons. So if, if this is something that interests you, just enter domain-specific and disgust and evolution in Google Scholar, and you'll get some really, really cool papers. Okay, my goodness. This is the longest. You know how long it's going to take me to download uh, this chat so that I can upload it on my podcast. It's already two hours and 13 minutes. You guys are killing me, but I'm loving these questions. I mean, unbelievable. We're, we've, we've covered everything under the sun. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, who, who do I got? Who do I have here? Let me see. Hold on. I don't want to miss anybody. Okay. Let me go to Daniel Philippus is back. Any thoughts on Oppenheimer? I don't know what Oppenheimer 2023 means. Bob Oppenheimer, the physicist. What does that mean? Is that who we're talking about? Who are we talking about? I don't. I don't know what Oppenheimer twenty twenty three means. I'm so sorry. I hate when somebody asks me something and then I can't even offer any semblance of an answer. I don't know what that is. My apologies. Alpha Dog Elite Three. I love those names. Sorry if this has been covered, but do you have any thoughts on the suggestion that gas stop being available? Just curious. Gas. You mean the. the Gas that goes into our car? What does that mean? What is that? Thank you, sir. Sorry if this has been covered, but do you have any thoughts on the suggestion that gas stop being available? 
just curious. Thank you. I'm going to presume what you mean is the fossil fuels. I mean, is this a fossil fuels question? I'm, I'm not getting it. If that's what you mean, no, I, I, I don't think that we should get rid of it and have solar panel planes anytime soon. Because, you know, if it's cloudy up there, we're in trouble. Uh, but not to be facetious, I think that, uh, I mean, by the way, you might have not heard this earlier, Alpha Dog Elite 3, but I just had one of the biggest uh, climate climate realists on my show, uh, Michael Schellenberger, who just who ran for California governor in 2018 and 2021. Uh, so if this is a topic that interests you, please read his book, uh, Apocalypse Never. Uh, it's likely to answer your questions. Thank you so much. I appreciate your contribution. Very, very kind of you. Erica E. Lee, 19. Okay. Well, you 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 gave the donation, but then I see the question below it. So because of that, I'm going to answer your question. Hi, God. Are you more of a tiger dad or free range dad? How about your wife? What a fantastic question. Uh, by the way, tiger mom, Amy Chua, professor of Yale, uh, professor of law at Yale, has been on my show. Go check out our chat. She's unbelievable. Not only is she a tiger mom, but she's a honey badger. Oh, my goodness. She is one fierce honey badger. Uh, I think I'm uh, I'm in the tiger. I'm in the extreme tiger range. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't give my children, uh, you know, freedom to to express themselves. Of course I do. Or to, but, you know, uh, range, oh, you know, take the metro when you're eight because it's all good. No, 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 no. That's not me. So I think, I think both my wife and I, I are tigers. Or maybe you could have predicted that. Oh, here comes Erica, Erica back. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, okay. You, you first wrote it as a non super chat. Then you, okay. So I just answered you. Thank you very much, Erica. Larry McFart. Okay. Godfather exclamation point. I tease my wife who is Iraqi that kibbe is the proper way to pronounce the dish, not kubba which is the Iraqi pronunciation, like the true Arab she is, brings down the hammer when I commit such blasphemy. Well, let me help you out. Your wife is wrong. It's kibbe. It's kibbe neye. It's kibbe b'saniye. It's kibbe. But no, but seriously, of course, there are different Arabic dialects, different Arabic accents. Uh, what I can tell you, and your wife may not be happy to hear this, Lebanese and Egyptian Arabic and Syrian Arabic, because it's very close to Lebanese, are, are the Italian of Arabic. In other words, they're the most beautiful uh, forms of Arabic uh, because they're more gentle, they're more singing. Uh, Iraqi is starting to get uglier. North African is auditory jihad. Some of the Gulf countries can be reasonably nice. So it really depends, but uh, Egyptian and Lebanese is the standard by which you should judge the beauty, the phonetic beauty of Arabic dialects. Sorry, Iraqis, not as nice. Let's move on. Alpha Dog Elite 3 is back. Autocorrect messed me over. <laughs> okay. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Autocorrect messed me over. Oh, there you said gas stop, but now you've corrected gas stoves. Uh, okay, just wanted your thoughts. Uh, yeah, this is the recent story about let's get rid of gas stoves. Uh, look, I can't make an argument about you know the the net 
climate impact of gas stoves. Uh, but my feeling is it's not based on my having read any of the you know scientific empirical literature. I think that it is part of the climate fascists, you know, hey, don't have kids anymore because more kids results in a bigger ecological footprint. You know, put diapers and uh, masks on the cows because the flatulence of the cows, that, that, that by the way, is, is literally true. The, the flatulence on the cows causes the methane gas, whatever, and on and on and on and on and on. It's a power grab in my view. I'm, I'm hardly one who's, you know, a QAnon conspiracist, but my feeling is that there is so much that a government is, should be allowed to intrude in your private life. Uh, having us all, you will eat the bugs and you will be happy as the Davos Schwab, Herr, Herr Hitler Schwab has advised us. So my feeling is it's overreach to ask us to stop using gas stoves. I mean, we don't have a gas stove in my home, but I think that people should have the liberty to decide whether it's for them or not. But thank you for coming back with the auto correction. Well, I mean, with the correction of the auto correction. Okay, let's uh, move on. Let's see if I have anybody else here. Did I miss anybody? Did I miss Larry McFart has answered? Erica Lee done. Erica Lee done. Is there anybody else left? Have I covered everybody? Let's see. Uh, okay, I covered this person, covered that one, covered this one. I think we're about done, guys. I think we are. Alpha Dog. Okay, let me go. I'm just going to scroll down, make sure. Oh, Larry McFart is back. Okay. How about we make Larry McFart the last gentleman for today because I'm at two hours and 20 minutes. Uh, oh, we got the hobby guy. I can't leave. If people are asking me questions, I can't leave you hanging. Larry McFart. Also, if we are looking to get a degree from a college or university, what should we look for to get a genuine education versus a woke ideological dump? Thanks. Great question. Uh, I mean, of course, I've addressed it on many occasions before, but let me just say this. I studied mathematics in my undergrad because I knew that no matter what I did, I always knew that I was going to be a professor, that I was going to live an intellectual life my entire life, that I was going to be, you know, as I said, an academic. Knowing that, though, I said, what's the, the field that's going to train me the most, that's going to give me the right mental exercise and it didn't matter whether i was going to end up becoming a mathematician or not i knew that studying math would give me that analytical foundation and it does many of the most famous psychologists all have backgrounds in mathematics even though eventually they became psychologists and behavioral scientists my my doctoral supervisor who got his phd in psychology at university of michigan studied mathematics before he became a psychologist i did too so it depends really what you're trying to maximize. But here's what I would say in a general way. I hope it satisfies you know, your question. Study something. It doesn't matter. You could study literature in a way that is very intellectually enriching. You could, right? you could study uh, uh, sociology in a very serious way. What you want to do is make sure to study it in, with professors who are devoid of those parasitic ideas. Now, it's difficult in sociology because the field has been so parasitized by idea pathogens that it's difficult to study sociology without being, you know, without drowning in woke bullshit. But that's not because sociology is not worthy of being studied scientifically. It's because 
it's been parasitized. It has fallen to all of those these ideologues. So I would say find the right department, the right professors. It's really about choosing the right professors who are going to give you that intellectual guidance. They could be experts in Shakespeare. They could be mathematicians. They could be neuroscientists. They could be you know, consumer psychologists or evolution psychologists. Of course, pick something that you are passionate about, but make sure to pick your professors and your intellectual mentors uh, by choosing people who are committed to reason and logic. But otherwise, any field could be intellectually enriching. Thank you for your question. Okay, let me go back. Oh, oh, okay. The hobby guy came back to explain to me what Oppenheimer is. Oppenheimer 2023 is a movie coming out about Oppenheimer and his development of the bomb. Okay, that's so it was Bob Oppenheimer, uh, part of the uh, the Manhattan Project. I'm guessing that's what you're talking about. Uh, so I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know much about it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you're asking me about, you know, what do I think about the Manhattan Project and the development of the atomic bomb? Uh, well, uh, uh, I mean, you know, is it, are you asking, should, should they have dropped it? The argument that the Americans give is that while it was, you know, grotesque and diabolical to incinerate hundreds of thousands of people by dropping the bomb, the cold calculational fact was that if the war were to go on for much longer because the Japanese were unlikely to surrender, then the number of people that would have died had they allowed the war to go on and drag would have been much greater than the number of people who were killed by dropping the bomb. So by a pure pros and cons, cost-benefit, calculational you know, metric, then they were, quote, morally justified to do so. So if that's what you're talking about, uh, that's the answer that the American government would give to why they dropped the bombs. But I didn't know that Oppenheimer 2023 is coming out. Uh, I rarely go to the movies, so this might be the type of movie that I might want to take the entire family and go see it in person. So thank you. I, I look forward to, to seeing it. I appreciate that. Cheers. Uh, do we have anybody else? Yeah, I think there's another person who just came. Uh, no, Larry McFart. We got Alpha Dog. Uh, okay, I think I think we're done. Are we done, guys? Is there anybody that I have not answered? Let me just scroll back very quickly to see if there's anybody that I didn't answer. If I didn't, my infinite apologies. I probably answered 40 questions. We've gone two hours and 24, 25 minutes now. We've had almost 300 people in this live stream. I wish it were many more. Maybe what I need to do is have, you know, a fixed time, which of course, people who do live streams, people who do it this way, you know, every Friday, two o'clock, I'm here. This kind of builds a routine so that people can come. I'll try to do that. My schedule is always so hectic. It's hard for me to commit, but thank you so much for coming. It was so much fun. I really appreciate it. Uh, oh my God, someone else just came. Hold on. Hold on. You, you guys are bastards. I can't leave. Okay. I was going to say goodbye, but now I can't. I feel beholden to people who come in. Don't donate after I finish these two guys. Okay. Three guys. Three guys just came. Oh my God. Alpha Dog Elite. Just wanted to donate one more time. Have a great weekend. You are so sweet. Thank you so much. Two more people. I got Larry McFart and I've got Heine rhymes what are these names okay let me go with larry mcfart first i hope these help offset the commissar take of your book i purchased thanks you're very kind very very kind it does offset a bit but then being the idiot that i am i'll declare all this money and then he will take 58 percent of that so keep giving hopefully it can offset the existential financial rape that has almost made me 
literally destitute because when they take all the money, I'm left with almost nothing. Anyways, Heine rhymes. I'm researching mental, physical disgust linked to Uncanny Valley, Dunning-Kruger, Das Unheimlich. Sorry, I don't speak German. Personal space based on a week. Could I ask you to take a look? If so, try emailing. Uh, I don't know if I can take a look. As I said, I received probably 100, 500. I don't know how many a day from also. Oh, I'm a movie director. Can you look at my movie? I'm a songwriter. Can you see my thing? I'm a student. Can you help me with my literature review? Because, of course, I am available for everyone 24 hours a day for free, all day, all the time. So, Forgive me for saying so. I might have to say probably not, if only because then I would be doing that for 100 different people. Uh, but send it. And if somehow I'm able to get to it, if it's a quick answer that you want, I'll try to do so. But you definitely mentioned a couple of cool words. Uh, the Uncanny Valley is a very cool concept, which I won't get into now. Dunning-Kruger, by the way, Dunning was my professor at Cornell. So uh, there you go, Dave Dunning. Uh, so send it, and please don't be upset if I don't respond, but I'll certainly try to. Uh, oh, Catherine Ginter came and simply said, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, let me get out before you guys come out uh, and send me some more generous donations. It was so good talking to you. Almost two and a half hours. We've almost pulled a Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan is about three hours. We pulled two and a half hours. You guys are fantastic. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Uh, this will be available later if you want to share the link of our entire chat on my channel. And also I'll post it hopefully by tomorrow on the podcast. If any of you want to listen to it while you're jogging or, you know, doing the wash or whatever it is. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. I am off to do more exercise, try to lose some more weight so I can come back and report that I'm under 170. Oh, James Owens is back. Thank you, Professor. EDSO is endorphins, dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. Oh, okay. Thank you so much for that. Uh, uh, I've done research on the effects of, not necessarily neurotransmitters, but uh, on the effects of hormones on our behaviors. So maybe we can take that up in the next live stream. Thank you so much, guys. I'm out of here. You guys are the best. It's a pleasure talking to you. Cheers. Take care.